It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. party like a Feldman Coast party because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. Well, <laughs> welcome to the mop up for October 23rd, 2021. Did I say October 23rd? I forgot. We're taping. This is a repeat from last October. Welcome to the mop up for August 23rd, 2021. We tape this on October 23rd, 2020. And, uh, Let's see if we get anything right. I'm David Feldman coming to you from the sharpest, smartest city in the world, Manhattan, uh, a, de a democratically run city, Manhattan, best schools, smartest people, scientists, lawyers, authors, scholars. We are the children of the Enlightenment here in New York City. And if only we in New York City could decide what is best for the rest of America. I don't understand why the other 59 states, is it 59 states, why they just don't surrender to our vast superior knowledge. COVID, for example, it's over. We, we declared that COVID was over on July 7th when Mayor Bill de Blasio threw a hometown heroes ticker tape parade. We had 14 floats. It was one of the biggest ticker tape parades in New York City history. And why not? We deserve it. We beat COVID. COVID is over. So we threw a, a ticker tape parade in the Canyon of Heroes and we celebrated. Now it's back to work, everyone. Our 18 horrible months are finally over. We defeated COVID here in New York City. It's back and we're going to have a big parade. We had the big parade and we're going to throw a big party in Central Park in August, August 21st, Saturday night. This past Saturday night, New York officially came back. We we had Paul Simon on the bill, John Batiste, Barry Manilow, the, the New York Philharmonic. And yes, uh, COVID technically hasn't disappeared. I mean, technically speaking, it's back. 
technically speaking, stronger than ever. The Delta variant is even worse. And we should really be inside unless we have to go outside. But we shouldn't be, technically speaking, we shouldn't be congregating maskless in Central Park, passing joints around and sipping on the wine and sharing the bottles. So technically speaking, COVID hasn't really disappeared. But, uh, you know, technically speaking, deaths in America from COVID have doubled in the past week. We have 200,000, technically speaking, we have 200,000 new cases of COVID yesterday in America. But we're New York and, and we know how to be careful. We know, we know what we're doing, unlike the other 49 states. Let's take a look at a, uh, a maskless Stephen Colbert, who I love, and Senator Chuck Schumer, who I can't stand. Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, he was, you know, living it up because we defeated COVID and it's time to party. What else could be on Senator Chuck Schumer's mind Saturday night? He deserves to, to party. He's the Senate majority leader. And Afghanistan is going well. He's got those two infrastructure bills that passed, I believe that they passed. And of course, the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Bill is passed. He deserves to kick back and let his freak flag show last Saturday. Let's take a look. That is uh, Senator uh, Chuck Schumer getting down with his mediocre self. Uh, looks, you know, he's got a dance. It's Saturday night. Chuck Schumer has a case of Saturday night fever with a slight case of chills and maybe a sore throat. He should get that looked at because the Delta variant, there's some breakthrough cases going around in the Senate. He should get that looked at. And Steve Colbert, we love Steve and Colbert dancing maskless because he's the best. He really is the best. And, uh, and America, he's got nothing to worry about. America recognizes that even though Greg Gutfeld on Fox News is now beating Stephen Colbert in the ratings, dance, there's nothing to worry about because that's just a temporary blip that Greg Gutfeld show on Fox is now beating Stephen Colbert. Gutfeld is a Neanderthal, and the American people will always choose sophistication, sophi cosmopolites like Stephen Colbert, maskless cosmopolites like Stephen Colbert over some hominid, and that's being generous, Greg Gutfeld. Calling Greg Gutfeld a hominid is being is being generous. So nobody has anything to worry about. It's Saturday night. Let's throw a party. And that, that's one thing New Yorkers know how to do is throw a party and we can relax with abandon because we have people who are dealing with the facts on the ground. Right. We wouldn't throw a party in Central Park unless the cosmopolites of Manhattan were on top of everything. So that concert was scheduled. And, you know, yes, COVID was scheduled to be over 
by the end of August. And yes, it, it's coming back even worse. And yes, nobody in the crowd was wearing masks and Stephen Colbert wasn't wearing a mask. But this is New York City. And we're more about telling the other 49 states to pay attention to what we say, not to what we do. It, it, it's kind of unfair to, to kind of look at what we're doing. Just pay it. We're a city of writers and pundits. Don't judge us by what we do. Judge us by how we say things, not how we act. And, and you know, we're just too busy saying things to have time to worry about what we're doing. So, yes, we got the COVID forecast completely wrong. But, hey, there are more important things in COVID, like weather. And this is New York City. We invented meteorology here in New York. So if there's a storm like Henri, we're prepared. Hurricane Henri was barreling down the coast of uh, or up the coast or across the East Coast. But we're New York and New York Governor Mario Cuomo, not Mario Cuomo, the idiot son of Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, it was his last official act as as governor of New York State before he had to step aside because of the sexual assault cases he's facing. But this was it. This was his this was his last act as governor, his last hurrah. And uh, so we we wanted to listen to Andrew Cuomo. We, we felt safe because we knew that he was on top of Henri. He was completely focused on Henri. Uh, this is about a storm briefing to save lives of New Yorkers. Uh, but you're the Law Journal. Uh, if you think justice is to accept a complaint from a person without investigation uh, and without credibility determinations and without uh, looking at past actions of that person, uh, then you don't know what the justice system is. Uh, you've never been in a situation where you just reiterate complaints uh, and you don't investigate them and you don't say whether or not the law even applies to them. Uh, that's not justice. That's a bulletin board uh, posting complaints. Uh, justice is, I hear the complaint, we welcome everyone to come forward, and that takes courage and that takes bravery, but we need to know the facts, right? People stay safe. I, I didn't really listen. I heard something about justice and Andrew Cuomo. I guess we're going to sue Henri for assault. I think that is what Andrew Cuomo is, is saying. That's uh, we're you know, so we were we were safe. We had nothing to worry about. As you could see, Schumer and Colbert danced all day, all afternoon in the lead up to the big concert because Andrew Cuomo was on top of it. And uh, well, the concert ended abruptly. It, it didn't turn out kind of turned out the way covid did. Uh, we we didn't see how bad Henri was going to be. The, the concert ended in the middle of Barry Manilow's I Can't Smile 
without you. I, I can't play the. T- this is true. I can't play the tape because of copyright infringement. But everyone was told to run for the hills. There were thunderbolts of lightning. Very, very frightening indeed. And uh, he was singing. I can't smile without you. I swear to God. Too bad. Uh, Barry didn't get to sing. I made it through the rain with the new lyrics. I made it halfway through the covid and it's coming back even stronger. But they called me to be in Central Park tonight and the phone doesn't ring the way it used to. So I'm here. Those are the (laughs) the lyrics to he rewrote. I made it through the rain. Well, so covid is back and and they didn't anticipate Henri. But it's hard to predict the future, folks. Take Afghanistan, for example. Joe Biden is president for one reason. Uh, Bernie couldn't be president. That's why Joe Biden is president, because the Democratic establishment wouldn't allow Bernie to become president. They put the thumb on the scale in South Carolina last year and they destroyed Bernie Sanders. They all came together. Pete Buttigieg and Kamala and Obama and the Clintons, they all rallied around Joe Biden, even though, you know, his brain is uh, not all there. Uh, The Democrats, the establishment, Clyburn, they understood that while Bernie Sanders was strong on social issues, we need a commander in chief. And, And you simply can't have a socialist running the Defense Department or national security or our State Department, because these are life and death issues. And as much as we all hate the establishment, Obama hates the establishment. But when it comes to keeping America safe and fulfilling our obligations to our partners overseas, we need a man from the inside, Joe Biden, who sat in the Situation Room next to Obama for eight years. We need Joe Biden, because he knows how things work. Bernie's an outsider. We can't trust him. Who's he going to surround himself with? Biden is going to surround himself with smart people from West Exec. That's the lobbying firm made up of former Obama foreign policy executives like our secretary of state, Anthony Blinken. He founded West Exec to to lobby the White House after he left the White House. And uh, we also have geniuses like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. He's on top of things. He's he's a graduate from Yale Law School. I mean, what more do you need? He's a graduate of Yale Law School, like other geniuses like Clarence Thomas and uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And that guy from uh, Current Affairs, who's a socialist and who just fired his staff because they wanted a Democratic workplace. I have a block on his name. Uh, We have uh, Jake Sullivan, who was graduate of Yale Law School. He was Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor in her 2016 campaign, which she lost. Uh, But that doesn't matter. Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, he knows his stuff. Because 
He has to know his stuff. He's national security advisor. And we need smart people being our national security advisor. You know, like Condi Rice from Stanford was our national security advisor. And she read the intelligence reports like Obama, not Obama, Osama bin Laden intent on flying buildings, flying planes into our buildings. And she saw that and she read that intelligence report and she said, you know what? It's August. It can wait. Let's wait till October and we'll deal with it. We need smart people like Jake Sullivan and Condi Rice. Sure, they're a little out of touch with the common folk. But when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to keeping us safe, they know their stuff. We need guys like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reading the intelligence, which is why Joe Biden could declare with absolute certainty on July 9th, he could declare this. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. He surrounded himself with the best and we were pulling out of Afghanistan with a plan. We all need a plan. And can you imagine if this happened under a Bernie Sanders administration? Which it wouldn't have, by the way. He wouldn't have surrounded himself with paper tigers like Jake Sullivan. Uh, but let's just say perhaps there were some blips in the pullout from Afghanistan. Mistakes happen. Do you have any idea how hard the Democratic establishment would be crashing down on Bernie Sanders right now? They would have been so gleeful. We told you so. You know, Bernie surrounded himself with good people, you know, good people who have good hearts, but not up. Their brains weren't there. We you know, we, you should have elected Joe Biden. He would have really taken care of this country, a president. It's all about national security. You know, you're a child to have elected Bernie Sanders. That's what they would have said. That's what they would have said if it went one one hundredth as poorly as it's gone with the, the Ivy League geniuses running the Situation Room in our White House right now. This is what expertise gets you, the best and the brightest, the best and the brightest. This is what the geniuses from Yale Law School get us. Jake Sullivan, who, by the way, grew up in Vermont. Bernie Sanders was your senator, Jake Sullivan, which means people like you who attend Yale and then Yale Law School are incapable of learning anything. You had Bernie Sanders as your senator and you learned nothing. So this is not good because it, it's, it's bad for Afghanistan. It's bad for the women. It's horrible for the women. And it's bad for America. It's really bad for America because it's nobody's fault. Nobody is taking blame. It's all finger pointing. And we're up against a Republican Party that has gone full fascist on us. And they are the party of authoritarians who use stupidity because they're stupid. So Saturday night, we had Chuck Schumer celebrating the end of covid and the victory in Afghanistan and uh, celebrating New York's ability to read meteorological maps and uh, 
read intelligence on the situation in Afghanistan. That was the big uh, blue rally in Central Park. Here was Donald Trump holding a rally in Alabama, celebrating America's defeat in Afghanistan. That's uh, pretty much <laughs> what went on in uh, Alabama Saturday night. Donald Trump celebrating America's defeat in Afghanistan. But you got to hand it to Donald Trump. He knows what it's like to be in the ring. And he did show some grudging respect for our opposition. Going to go on for a long time. Taliban, great negotiators, tough fighters, great negotiators. Taliban, great negotiators, tough fighters, great negotiators. That's pretty sporting of Donald Trump. I, 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 that's going to go on for a long time. Taliban, great negotiators, tough fighters, great negotiators. Great negotiators. That's that's so sporting of Donald Trump. Uh, and that's what you do when you lose. We lost in Afghanistan. That is a profile in being magnanimous. What we saw from Donald Trump, you, you praise the opponent like he did, called them tough fighters, great negotiators. And and he says, you know, we lost fair and square. That's what he's basically saying. He, he's not afraid to say we lost fair and square, just like he did after the election in November. Remember when he said, you know, Biden's a tough opponent. We'll get him next time. That's why Trump would make such a great president. We need a deal maker in the Oval Office. It's just too bad that we never got to have him in the Oval Office because we need him in the Oval Office. We need a real estate mogul in the Oval Office. Been going for a long time. Taliban, great negotiators, tough fighters, great negotiators. You know, that's the rough and tumble world of Manhattan real estate. Great fighters, great negotiators. And, you know, that's his gift. We could use Donald Trump. You don't get to pour concrete in Manhattan unless you're somebody like Donald Trump who knows how to negotiate and knows how to fight, who knows how to make the deal. And that's what America needs right now is someone like Donald Trump. He doesn't need an army. He can use his real estate expertise. He can just evict the Taliban from Afghanistan. If only he got a chance to become president and uh, prove that that a real estate mogul can solve all our problems through tough negotiations. And that that's fortunate for Donald Trump. He's very lucky because his supporters have the attention span of a gnat's fart. So they've completely forgotten that Donald Trump was ever president. He's so lucky that his supporters have forgotten that he was president. They have completely forgotten that he had four years to use his real estate expertise and evict the Taliban. All they know, all his supporters in Alabama know or can remember is that Trump was robbed and should be president. He was robbed. So Trump's in, in, a, in, in pretty good shape to finally get elected president because Biden is not doing well in the polls and we need smart people. And that's the thing about Donald Trump. You don't get to the top of a 
money laundering Ponzi scheme in Manhattan without surrounding yourself with the best, with the best. And one of my favorite people, oh, she's so smart. I hope she's around, I hope she's around. She is an incredible woman. She's a brilliant woman, doesn't get credit for it, but we all know about that stuff. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Marjorie, where is she? She's great. She is great. She's a warrior. She's a warrior. Everything I said about Georgia is true, Marjorie, right? Yeah. She's smart and she's a warrior. That's what we need. That's what we need a president who can surround himself with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's not only smart, but she's a a warrior. Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she takes some ribbing from some of my guests on this show. But the truth is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is smart and she weighs her words very, very carefully. Joe Biden, you're not a president. You're a piece of shit. Thousands of Americans are stuck over there in Afghanistan, and you're letting the Taliban kick your ass while you're lecturing governors about masks and vaccines. Do your job. Bring these Americans home. By the way, she doesn't have writers. She came up with that all by herself. It's amazing. Joe Biden, you're not a president. You're a piece of shit. Thousands that is, wow. We need smart warriors like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene who can turn a phrase like that. Forget Nikki Haley. Remember, I think she was once uh, United Nations ambassador. Marjorie Taylor Greene should be our ambassador to the United Nations in a future Trump administration. Joe Biden, you're not a president. You're a piece of shit. Thousands of Americans are stuck over there. Yeah, we could definitely use Marjorie Taylor Greene in a Trump administration because it's becoming painfully obvious that the 2020 election is isn't over. Uh, it's still going on. And and Donald Trump should start picking his cabinet. He should. He, and uh, I think he's in Alabama Saturday night. He kind of started dropping hints as to who he would put in charge of uh, our national defense if and when he ever gets to be our commander in chief. A patriot, a wonderful man, a man who puts his guts into everything, a man that they don't treat properly. He's smart. He loves this country so much. He's willing to die for this country. I watched him over the last week at his symposium, which was really amazing. Some of the people he had were incredible, incredible people. Mike Lindell. Mike. Mike Lindell. He's willing to die for his country. That's, that is what... Did, did Trump, let me listen to that again. Did he say Mike Lindell is ready to die for his country? A patriot, a wonderful man, a man who puts his guts into everything, a man that they don't treat properly. He's smart, 
He loves this country so much. He's willing to die for this country. I watched him over the last week at his symposium, which was really amazing. Some of the people he had. Okay. He said that Mike Lindell is willing to die for his country. Lindell was there. He was backstage. And you know he had to be wondering, who said anything about dying for my country, Donald? I mean, Giuliani is really thrown under the bus by Trump. Trump won't pay Giuliani's legal fees. He's doing cameos. Uh, I get that. But uh, I'm going to die for my country. I don't think Lindell is planning to die for his country, uh, especially because uh, Donald Trump needs you, Mike Lindell, because you're his savior. Uh, Earlier at the rally, you reminded everyone of why they are there. When you steal, when you steal an election, you don't just steal an election and we go and we're going to sit here and go, okay, let's wait for 2020 or let's wait for 2024. I'll tell you what, it's Trump 2021. That's what it is, 2021. If we don't solve, if we don't solve 2020, there is no 2022 and 2024. If we don't solve 2020, there is no 2022 or 2024. This is the guy who we've got adding up the votes. This is a smart man. 2020 is not over even though it's 2021. It isn't over. Who could imagine that when the Republicans talk about the forever war, what they mean is it's a forever war on democracy. I always thought it was a war on terror. Nope, it's a war on our democracy. But of course, Donald Trump won't admit that he's fighting a war on democracy. Remember, I'm not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I am the one trying to save American democracy. Okay, all right, I made a mistake. Uh, Hang on. Am I there? I made a mistake. I thought that uh, President Trump was... uh, trying to undermine democracy. So I was wrong and I stand corrected. President Trump pressed Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to change the vote count, citing disproven claims of fraud. Wait, 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 wait. I don't know who just said that. A a United States president tried to fix the election in Georgia? When did that happen? That's impossible. You're calling the very premise of our democracy into question. You can't say that our president tried to fix the election unless you have proof. I need to I need actual proof that Donald Trump tried to fix an American election. I just want to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, which is one more than we have. All right. That's not fair. That's that's not fair to have that kind of proof, because 
this is politics and politics is show business. And what we say in the heat of the moment, we should not be held to account uh, for what we say. We should be allowed to say whatever we want to say. And then we should be allowed to say, I didn't say that. We should be allowed to deny it. We should be allowed to say, maybe I said it, but you're mishearing what I said. And it's not what I meant. You can't start throwing stuff back at me. You, you can't have proof like this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. That is not fair. That is just not fair. You can't throw around accountability here in the United States and, and show incontrovertible evidence that Donald Trump got on the phone with the election officials in Georgia and told them to fix the election. That is unfair. And you're going to end up sounding like like this wackadoodle, Katrina Vandehoevel. She was the publisher of The Nation magazine, and she turned on Bill Kristol about nine years ago on ABC Sunday morning, all because Bill Kristol still to this very day believes the invasion of Iraq was a good idea and, and that we should be invading Iran. And this wackadoodle, Katrina Vandehoevel, is talking about accountability. Look how bad she comes across. I just want to find... Uh, Sitting next to Bill Crystal, man. I mean, the architects of a catastrophe that have cost this country trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, there should be accountability. We should not, if there are no regrets for the failed assumptions that have so grievously wounded this nation, I don't know what happened to our politics and media accountability, but we need it, Bill, because this country should not go back to war. We don't need armchair warriors. And if you feel so strongly, you should, with all due respect, enlist in the Iraqi army. That's a very cute line. Katrina. No, no, but, people, but it's real. A million, a million look, look Iraq, at the displaced. Thousands of people are being killed. Gone. Can I just make a point? A million Iraqis have been displaced. You yes. read that story, humanitarian aid for what we have done to that country is a crime. We have done and to that should, country. That is Katrina Vanderhoevel. She's out of her mind. She's holding Bill Crystal accountable for his words. Katrina Vanderhoevel is a columnist. She used to publish The Nation magazine. She's all about writing. And 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 Bill Crystal, Harvard, publisher of the Weekly Standard. He's he's an editor. Both of them should know. Bill Crystal knows that words don't mean anything, that what you write should never be reread again. I don't know why Katrina Vandehoevel doesn't understand that words mean nothing and that we shouldn't reread or look back at what anybody's ever said. That includes columnists, pundits, nobody who's listening to a politician or a talk show host or a pundit is listening to them for guidance. OK, we don't we don't turn to to the news to find out what's really going on. People do their own research. We're all citizen journalists, like with COVID. You don't listen to a doctor. You don't listen to Fauci. You go on the internet and you have the freedom to decide what your own version of reality is. People can make up their own minds. For example, for example, last Thursday, some white man, as, as Kabul was falling, and we weren't allowing any uh, 
Afghanistan refugees into this country because they could be terrorists, according to Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and the right wing. We can't allow, even though we took 300,000 Vietnamese refugees in after the Vietnam War, and none of them turned out to be terrorists, we cannot allow any Afghanistani refugees into America because they're a, they're a possible terrorist threat. So last week as Kabul was falling, we, we had a reminder of who the real threat in this country is. It's white, white men. There was a white man last Thursday. He parked himself outside the Library of Congress and threatened to blow the place up. He was a white man. And I was watching Laura Ingram's show on Fox. Here's how Fox News covered this white man in his van threatening uh, to blow himself up as well as the Library of Congress. Man claiming to have a bomb in his truck near the U.S. Capitol surrendered after an hours-long standoff. Law enforcement did not find a bomb in the vehicle, but say they collected possible bomb-making materials. So far, no word on a possible motive. I'm Jackie Ibanez. Now so far, no word on a possible motive. A white man uh, drove into the United States Capitol parked himself in front of the Library of Congress and threatened to blow himself up, and they don't know what the motive was. Hmm. You know, I did my own research. I guess Jackie Ibanez over at Fox News didn't have time to do her research. I uh, saw what was on Facebook. Uh, this gentleman, this white man, uh, was live streaming his terrorist attack, and he said... And I quote, I am doing this because Biden is an illegitimate president and the election was stolen from Donald Trump. But of course, that's just something the terrorists live streamed on Facebook in the middle of his mini insurrection. And it's unfair to play back the man's words and hold him accountable for what he said while he was conducting his mini insurrection. It's unfair. We can't really ascertain the motive of a white man parked in front of the Library of Congress about to blow himself up because the election was stolen. It's a great mystery as to what the motive was. Fox, and I trust Fox, they say the man, they don't know what the motive was. We have no idea why he would do something like that. Nobody planted any ideas in his head. Nobody. He just did his own research, came up with his own motive. Well, maybe he'll tell us what the motive is. Maybe he won't. And people want to blame. They want to blame politicians for this guy threatening to blow himself up in front of the Library of Congress. They want to blame right-wingers for saying that the election was stolen, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, all because this guy said in the middle of his mini-insurrection, I'm going to blow myself up and I'm going to blow up the Library of Congress because this election was stolen.
uh, when we start questioning the rights of people on the radio or politicians to talk that way, that's censorship. You know, that's we cannot lose our freedoms all because some tourists on January 6th partied too hard at the United States Capitol. And I'm, you know, I, I thank I thank the right wing for championing the First Amendment. People like Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, who uh, was National Security Advisor, and uh, he got fired because of censorship, because his freedom of speech rights were taken away from him. He uh, violated the Hatch Act, which is so unfair. The Hatch Act forbids people who aren't in the United States government to negotiate with foreign leaders claiming they represent the United States government. So General Michael Flynn, currently a uh, member of QAnon, General Michael Flynn was Donald Trump's national security advisor, he was appointed to be national security advisor, but Donald Trump had not yet taken office and General Flynn wasn't quite yet the national security advisor, but he called Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, and said, I know that President Obama is giving you sanctions for interfering with the election. Hold off on Retribution. Don't issue any sanctions against America. Tell Putin when I'm going to be national security advisor and we're going to drop those sanctions. Uh, so he was negotiating against Obama, even though Obama was still president. And that's in violation of the Hatch Act. And it's a they say it's against the law. But whatever happened to freedom of speech, shouldn't you be allowed to negotiate against your country? Uh, I, that's freedom. That's a slippery slope. Pretty soon they'll be telling us whether or not a woman can have an abortion or not. Where does it end? We have to protect freedom of speech. It's all censorship. And and Michael Flynn, nobody is more worried about censorship and more worried about our civil liberties than General Michael Flynn. The way they are going after th these tourists who, who partied a little too hard on January 6th. This is what uh, Michael Flynn said two days ago. Nancy Pelosi's insurrection crucifixion, which is, going, which is all about the 6th of January, right? All about the 6th of January. That's a crucifixion. They are putting, I mean, honest to God, they're putting good, great people, patriots up there. It's a crucifixion. You know, I'm not a Christian like General Flynn. Uh, but he, you know, th they are crucifying. It is a crucifixion. The 50 people who are being held in the Washington, D.C. jail right now for parting too hard on January 6th, they are being crucified. And, you know, crucified, I think of Jesus when I think of a crucifixion. And there are a lot of similarities between the people who were, you know, went inside uh, the Capitol on January 6th and Jesus. There, there are a lot of similarities. It is a crucifixion. There are a lot of similarities between the people who stormed the Capitol. Uh, you know, Jesus was all about 
turning the other cheek, nonviolence, peace. And that's what those people reeked of. They reeked of something, but uh, th that was a peaceful, uh, those were men of God and, and they are being crucified. What a great use of the, the word crucified. Uh, words matter, I guess. If you're gonna use the word crucified, maybe, maybe your choice of words, maybe it does count. So I'm worried about censorship. I, I really am. And uh, the left, they can't wait to hold the, the right accountable, especially when you tell a joke, right? The cancel culture. For example, January 6th, when the tourists showed up to, to celebrate, Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama, he gave a speech before Donald Trump was giving his speech. Mo Brooks gave a speech and, you know, because we have freedom of speech in this country and, and all these people showed up with sidearms and bear spray and bulletproof vests. And he was, you know, he showed up and he looked out at the crowd and he, he himself was wearing a bulletproof vest and uh, he was spitballing some ideas. You know, it was a safe place to to, you know, roll the Confederate flag up the flagpole to see if anybody salutes. He was just spitballing ideas. Here he was just, you know, just running some ideas past the tourists. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. <laughs> uh, this is about a storm briefing. <laughs> All right. It would be nice if I played the right clips. Uh, let me let, let's do that again. Let's play Mo Brooks spitball and some ideas. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Which, by the way, is what everyone at that event smelled like ass. Uh, he was playing was harmless. He was playing with some ideas in his head, Mo Brooks. He wasn't telling that group of fine gentlemen to to storm the Capitol on January 6th. He was Mo Brooks, Congressman Mo Brooks was participating in what we intellectuals call a thought exercise. And, and now Congressman Eric Swalwell, he's a Democrat, he has filed a civil lawsuit in federal court against Mo Brooks, saying that Mo Brooks incited the the insurrection for 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 saying something as harmless as this to a group of armed white men. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Wow, these the liberal. The liberals, they hate the First Amendment. And Congressman Eric Swalwell has filed this lawsuit uh, against Congressman Mo Brooks, claiming those words, you know, hey, let me pitch an idea to you people. Uh, but that, that that's somehow an incitement to violence. Uh, cancel culture, that, that's what it is. It's these kind of legal actions that the civil suit that Mo Brooks is facing, 
it's a slippery slope. It's this kind of legal action that chills freedom of speech. I'm afraid to talk that way now. I'm afraid I'm going to get sued. Now, Trump spoke in uh, Mo Brooks's backyard, uh, Alabama. Trump spoke in Alabama on Saturday and Mo Brooks spoke first. And you could tell that he's not the same guy he used to be. It's very sad. He's now watching his words because of the cancel culture, because of lawsuits like the one Congressman Eric Swalwell has filed against Mo Brooks. Mo Brooks now, there's a stutter step in his speech, all because of a frivolous lawsuit about some what they call an insurrection. Again, it's a party that went on, you know, a party that the stereo, they were playing the stereo too loud. This is what trial lawyers end up doing to the First Amendment when they start suing us for what we say. Here, here is, um, here's Mo Brooks on January 6th. Today is the day American patrons start taking down names and kicking ass. Okay, that was Mo Brooks, Congressman Mo Brooks on uh, January 6th. And look what what the cancel culture has done to this man. This is him now, Saturday night. There are some people who are despondent about the voter fraud and election theft in 2020. Folks, put that behind you. Put that behind you. Yes. Look forward. Look forward. Look forward. Beat them in 2022. Beat them in 2024. We've got to win in 2024. That's what we've got to do. <laughs> See, he, the crowd started booing him. The politically correct crowd in Alabama was booing Mo Brooks because he was saying, you know, forget about what happened on uh, January 6th and what happened in uh in 2020, let's move forward. But the cancel culture, they started booing him. They wouldn't let him do his act. Uh, they don't want Mo Brooks to put it behind him. And now Mo Brooks can't perform without getting booed. The cancel culture once again has has uh, has won. <laughs> just look at that. I love that. Let me just play that again. This is real leadership because a crowd you know, voters are like children and we have leaders to parent them properly and guide them. You don't listen to an angry mob and cater to them. You gently nudge them into the light. And <laughs> let's watch Mo Brooks trying to teach the crowd to move on. There are some people who are despondent about the voter fraud and election theft in 2020. Folks, put that behind you. Put that behind you. Yes. Look forward. Look forward. Look forward. Beat them in 2022. Beat them in 2024. All right. Well, look back at it, but go forward and take advantage. 
advantage of it. All right, then look backwards and go forward and take advantage of. He was negotiating with the crowd. See, he's a skilled negotiator, just like Donald Trump. This is the kind of guy who could negotiate with the Taliban. He was negotiating with the crowd. But this is the cancel culture. They're, they're booing poor Mo Brooks in the audience. And it's not just Mo Brooks, the cancel culture. They infiltrated the rally in Alabama. You know, the speech police, they were out in full force. Donald Trump, as we all know, is a little spooked by the uh, COVID cases spiking where he is speaking. They seem to spike where he speaks. And COVID is on the rise in Alabama. Nobody is getting vaccinated. And Trump, even though he tells you not to wear a mask, he kind of thinks maybe you should get a vaccine, but his supporters are anti-vaxxers. It's kind of he's got a tough needle to thread Donald Trump. And that crowd was having none of it. They, they were making him work. He really had to work when he told the people maybe kind of sort of get a vaccine. The crowd turned on him. The crowd turned on him and they, they thought, how can this be? Donald Trump wants to rob us of our freedoms. I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got no, that's OK. That's all right. You got your freedoms. But I happen to take the vaccine. If it doesn't work, you'll be the first to know. OK. I love it. He's trying to be responsible to this mob of savages. He's going to take the vaccine, take the vaccine. And they start booing. And then he throws red meat. You got your freedoms. You got your freedoms. He throws some red meat at them. But, you know, maybe you should take the vaccine. Let's just watch that. One. You, let me just watch that one more time. I love that. I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got. No, that's OK. That's all right. You got your freedoms, but I happen to take the vaccine. If it doesn't work, you'll be the first to know, okay? <laughs> Get your vaccines. Boo. Hey, you got your freedoms. You got your, here's some more red meat. Chew on that. Animals. This audience is just a bunch of animals. So, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, he's in trouble. He runs Texas. The people, uh, Kay Ivey in Alabama, the Republican governor, she's in trouble. Ron DeSantis runs Florida, another Republican. He's in trouble. The Republicans are losing the war against COVID. Who do you blame? Well, you can't blame yourself. You have to look for somebody else to blame. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick runs Texas. Uh, everybody thinks Greg Abbott runs Texas, but you're a figurehead if you're the governor of Texas. They give it to idiots like Rick Perry uh, and uh, even people who are dumber than Rick Perry, like uh, George W. Bush. The real brains in Texas, they give them the real brains. They put them in the lieutenant governor's office, and that's the guy in charge. And that's Dan Patrick. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, a Republican, runs Texas. And he runs Texas kind of the way he ran his business before he became governor into the ground. He ran his business into the ground. So he went into politics and now he's running Texas into the ground. And many 
citizens of Texas are literally being put into the ground because of these anti-mask mandates, and they're really not supporting vaccines. As you all know, Texas is having a problem with freedom because of the mask mandates and downplaying the vaccines. Uh, well, they're not downplaying vaccines. They're saying vaccines are up to you. That's the message uh, Dan Patrick and Greg Abbott are giving the good people of Texas. They're, they're very clear in what they're saying. They're, they're not saying don't get a vaccine. They're not saying don't get one. What they're saying is do your own research. And if you do your own research, you'll discover that vaccines were created by the Jews to plant microchips in your brain to convince your white women to fall in love with black men. That's their message about vaccines. It's up to you. You decide. Well, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, had a pretty convincing explanation for why COVID numbers are rising in Texas. We're coming after your state uh, really quickly here and as a response, coming after your state because yes. the increased COVID numbers, hospitalizations, deaths are up in Texas. Uh, and there's a direct assault on your governor's policies and your state's policies. Yeah. Very brief response. Yeah. Well, Laura, the, the COVID is spreading, particularly uh, most of the numbers are with the unvaccinated and the Democrats like to blame Republicans on that. Well, the biggest group in most states are African-Americans who have not been vaccinated. The last time I checked, over 90 percent of them vote for Democrats in their major cities and major counties. So it's up to the Democrats to get just as it's up to Republicans to try to get as many people vaccinated. But we respect the fact that if people don't want the vaccination, we're not going to force it on them. That's their individual right. But but in terms of criticizing the Republicans for this, we're encouraging yeah. people who want to take it to take it. But they're doing nothing for the Afri African-American community that has a, a significant high yeah. number of unvaccinated TikTok people. TikTok videos. So they need we, got to a lot of, yeah. we got a lot of TikTok. Yes. It's black people's fault. It's black people's fault that COVID is on the rise in Texas, which means it's the Democratic Party's fault. But let's not politicize. Let us not politicize. COVID. That's the message from the Republican Party. Do not politicize COVID. Racialize it. Make it all about race. That is, <laughs> you know, just when you, when you think you've seen everything, that is the most powerful politician in Texas blaming black people for the rise in COVID. Unbelievable. Well, one day, maybe Dan Patrick will look back, maybe, and apologize, because that is one of the worst things I've heard in my life. I've been following politics for a long time. That may be one of the worst things I have ever heard, not a, not a politician, but a political, but, but, but a government official say, this could be possibly the worst thing a government official ever said during a national crisis. They're coming after your state uh, really quickly here and as a response, coming after your state because yes. the increased COVID numbers, hospitalizations, deaths are up in Texas. Uh, and there's a direct assault on your governor's policies and your state's policies. Yeah. Very brief response. Yeah. 
Well, Laura, the, the COVID is spreading, particularly uh, most of the numbers are with the unvaccinated and the Democrats like to blame Republicans on that. Well, the biggest group in most states are African-Americans who have not been vaccinated. The last time I checked, over 90% of them vote for Democrats in their major cities and major counties. So it's up to the Democrats to get, just as it's up to Republicans, to try to get as many people vaccinated. But we respect the fact that if people don't want the vaccination, we're not gonna force it on them. That's their individual right. But in terms of criticizing the Republicans for this, we're encouraging yeah. people who wanna take it to take it, but they're doing nothing for the Afri African-American community that has a, a significant high yeah. number of unvaccinated TikTok people. TikTok videos, so they need we, got to of, yeah. we got a lot of TikTok. Yes. Right, and a Republican governor and a Republican lieutenant governor of Texas, because they're Republicans, they cannot communicate with African-Americans and tell them to get vaccines. The only people who can talk to black people who speak their language are Democrats. They're the black whisperer. We have we can't communicate with black people. We're just elected government officials and we can only talk to white people. We need the Democrats to talk to the black people. They speak their language. I mean, that is one of the worst things I have ever heard ever on one of these these shows. And Dan Patrick will never apologize for saying that. Never. He will never apologize. He'll deny that he said it. There's a playbook to all this. Or you're taking my words out of context. You're hearing what you choose to hear. But, you know, you play that over and over again. It actually gets worse. But he will never admit that he's a racist or that he said something that was just singularly the most racist thing I, I think I've heard this year. And don't forget, Donald Trump uh, is making speeches. Uh, but some people do. Some people are capable of apologizing. Some people are capable of realizing that they were wrong and they ask for forgiveness. Glenn Beck, when Glenn Beck, when Barack Obama first became president, Glenn Beck uh, said something on Fox and Friends. This is what he said. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. This, well, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist... I want to play that again, because this is the classic racist playbook. You, you make a statement in public. You say Barack Obama is a racist. OK, then you're challenged by <laughs> Brian Kilmeade, who is the uh, the the honest interlocutor in this. Uh, so you say. Barack Obama is a racist. Then Brian Kilmeade says, you can't say he's a racist, that he hates white people. He surrounds himself with white people. David Axelrod, Rahm Emanuel, 70% of the people in the Oval Office are white. So Glenn Beck does a retreat and says, I'm not saying he's a racist. I'm saying he has a problem with 
Barack Obama's a racist. That was the dance move. And, and these sociopaths repeat the same dance move wherever they go. It's the same dance move. I'm going to say something racist and horrible. You're going to call me on it. Then I'm going to say, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is something racist and horrible. Uh, pay attention to this. I'm going to play it one more time. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. There's, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist... So I'm saying he has a deep seated hatred for white people. He gets called on it. I, I'm not saying I'm saying he has a pro he's racist. Uh, well, Glenn Beck, to his credit, Glenn Beck, to his credit, uh, two years later, said he was wrong. He apologized. You know, this is a rarity on the right. Uh, especially with uh, pundits. It's, it's very rare for somebody to be reminded of something they said and then take it back. It takes a big man like Glenn Beck to admit that he was wrong. And you know what? It takes an even bigger man to admit that he was wrong for admitting that he was wrong. I take my apology back. I was exactly right. And I even stated it right. You are a racist if you believe in critical race theory. If you think that what Dr. Martin Luther King said, that he envisions a country that uh, is, is um, uh, seeing, seeing people for the content of their character and not their color, if you think that's wrong, then yes, you are a racist. Yes, he takes his apology back. Uh, he was wrong for apologizing because what he said on Fox and Friends was exactly right. He was, I, we'll play it again because he was talking about critical race theory back uh, when he was on Fox and Friends. Let's talk about how, let's play Glenn Beck calling Obama a racist because Obama is in favor of critical race theory, which by the way, in the first year of Obama's presidency, that's all anybody talked about was critical race theory. It was on everybody's mind back then. Let's let's listen to Glenn Beck calling Obama a racist because he believes, because Obama believes in critical race theory. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. There's, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist. Yeah. It was all about critical race theory. And so I'm glad Glenn Beck took it back. Let's let's listen again. I take my apology back. I was exactly right. And I even stated it right. 
You are a racist if you believe in critical race theory. If you think that what Dr. Martin Luther King said, that he envisions a country that uh, is is um, uh, seeing, seeing people for the content of their character, not their color. If you think that's wrong, then yes, you are a racist. Yes, that's exactly what you said in 2009 on Fox and Friends. And that's exactly what you said. And you can say, you, I take my apology back because what I said back then was right. And I even phrased it right. I even phrased it right. And I just showed you how well he phrased it back then. But nobody in an age of sound bites, nobody's going to play back what exactly he said so he can just say this is what history is that's what history is according to glenn beck nobody you know tucker carlson he can't play he can't play that clip from fox and friends tucker carlson is on fox news how is he going to get his hands on a clip from Fox and Friends. Where would, where would they find that clip of Glenn Beck on Fox and Friends? How, how could they do that? I, I, I can't imagine. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. There's, well, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist... I take my apology back. I was exactly right. And I even stated it right. You are a racist if you believe in critical race theory. If you think that what Dr. Martin Luther King said, that he envisions a country that uh, is is um, uh, seeing, seeing people for the content of their character, not their color. If you think that's wrong, then yes, you are a racist. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. There's, well, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist. Wow. Hmm. If only Tucker Carlson could have played back to Glenn Beck what uh, he actually said. But uh, it's pretty amazing. Wait a second. Glenn Beck is he's back. He you want to say something? You wanted to add something else. OK. By the way, you rejected Jeremiah Wright. How are you feeling about the new senator uh, from uh, from Georgia? How do you feel about him? I wonder. I'll bet you you love him, but I bet you don't have the courage to say it. That is such. Let's let's hear that again, because Glenn Beck is attacking Barack Obama, who I can't stand anymore. But uh, I'm not I don't hate Barack Obama uh, because he's black the way Glenn Beck has traditionally hated Barack Obama because he's black the same way Tucker Carlson hates Barack Obama because he's black. So now after taking back his apology for calling Barack Obama a racist, Glenn Beck 
offers up a really brilliant afterthought, a post thought that uh, let's, he talks about Jeremiah Wright, who was Barack Obama's pastor. I'll get to that in a second. And he's talking about Senator Warnock, who's a black minister from Georgia. Okay, and so Glenn Beck is pointing out the hypocrisy on Barack Obama's uh, side because Barack Obama rejected Jeremiah Wright, but he secretly loves he secretly loves Senator Warnock from Georgia, but he's too ashamed to admit it. By the way, you rejected Jeremiah Wright. How are you feeling about the new senator uh, from uh, from Georgia? How do you feel about him? I wonder. I'll bet you you love him, but I bet you don't have the courage to say it. That is such a good point. That's such a good point. It really is. And Tucker Carlson, he can recognize a good point. And it's true, right? You know, uh, Barack Obama secretly loves Senator Warnock, but lacks the, the courage to to say that he wanted Senator Warnock to get elected to the Senate. That's why I'm supporting Reverend Raphael Warnock in the special election for Senate. Reverend Warnock's someone I've known for years. He's a man of great moral integrity, a leader in the truest sense of the word. He spent his life pushing for justice, fighting to expand health care, protecting voting rights and the dignity of work. You don't find a lot of people in Washington like Reverend Warnock, and that's exactly why we got to get him there. Please join me in supporting Raphael Warnock for Senate. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I know we can do better. That's why I approve this message. You can just say anything in America. There is no accountability. I'm going to. Sorry. I'm sorry, but uh, this is. I'm going to play Glenn Beck one more time. By the way, you rejected Jeremiah Wright. How are you feeling about the new senator uh, from uh, from Georgia? How do you feel about him? I wonder. I'll bet you you love him, but I bet you don't have the courage to say it. That is such a good point. That's why I'm supporting Reverend Raphael Warnock in the special election for Senate. Reverend Warnock's someone I've known for years. He's a man of great moral integrity, a leader. in the That is such a good point. Uh, Glenn Beck is a racist. Uh, he's called the black people in New Orleans who drowned after Katrina, quote unquote, scumbags. He's a racist and racism is a disease. It's when you look at people like Glenn Beck, you realize this no amount of chemotherapy can can eradicate the, the racism inside of Glenn Beck. And it, it shines in that last clip. He cannot differentiate between Reverend Senator Warnock and uh, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright. It's just pure racism that he would lump Jeremiah Wright and Senator Warnock in the same into the same pigeonhole. He's a racist. Glenn Beck is a racist. So he just assumes 
that Reverend Warnock, who speaks from the same pulpit that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke from, the same doctor whose words Glenn Beck couldn't wait to invoke, Dr. Martin Luther King, Senator Warnock speaks from that same pulpit. And what Glenn Beck conveniently leaves out of that previous statement is that Dr. Martin Luther King would be in favor of teaching critical race theory in our schools. That's the stuff that racists like Glenn Beck conveniently leave out of the conversation, but they say it so convincingly and with such fervor and power, it's got to be true. It's Fox News. It's Fox News. Certainly, if he were lying, they would correct him. Uh, so Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock and Jeremiah Wright are exactly the same in Glenn Beck's estimation. He just automatically assumes, having never gone to church to see Reverend Warnock, he just assumes that he's a firebrand like Jeremiah Wright, because all black preachers are the same. You know, uh, let's go into Iraq because all Arabs are the same. Oh, they're, they're Sunnis and, and, and they're Shiites? I, oh, that's what this kind of thinking, that's where bigotry gets you. It gets you a president like George W. Bush, who just assumes if you're in Iraq, you're an Arab, you're all the same. Then they discover, oh, no, there are some Sunnis and they're Shiites and they don't necessarily get along. And you have bigots like Glenn Beck, who just assumes that Senator Warnick is just like Jeremiah Wright. Well, Barack Obama did throw Jeremiah Wright under the bus. Uh, he shouldn't have, but he was running for president. This is Jeremiah Wright. This is why Barack Obama had to throw him under the bus during the 2008 presidential campaign. This is not Senator Warnick, who's also a reverend. No, 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 not God bless America, God damn America, that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating our citizens as less than human. God damn America, as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. I mean, that's pretty incredible that that nobody corrected uh, Glenn Beck. For, for equating Senator Warnick with Jeremiah Wright. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievably racist. And uh, by the way, uh, Jeremiah Wright, I think Reverend Jeremiah was a Marine who served our country. I know he served in the military. And that's the only clip that anybody knows about because we deal in sound bites. So Barack Obama was running for president and he had to disassociate himself from Jeremiah Wright, who was his minister at the time. He was retiring at the time. And as Jeremiah Wright said, Jeremiah Wright said, I'm not apologizing for what I said. That's a sound bite. You need to listen to it 
you need to listen to the context, which I am guilty of. I don't have time to play the three minute lead up to that speech, which was absolutely brilliant. So because it's politics, he had to be thrown under the bus for saying something that was absolutely brilliant, something that Barack Obama, I don't know if he could have gotten elected had he not thrown uh, Jeremiah Wright under the bus. But for Glenn Beck to bring up Jeremiah Wright and warning, I mean, that is just unadulterated racism. Nobody corrects or challenges Glenn Beck. He's in a bubble. Nobody corrects Tucker Carlson. They just get to say whatever they want and people believe them. People believe them, even though they're not journalists. They're at best propagandists. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I maybe one day we'll discover that I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, there are legitimate radio talk show hosts who who genuinely care about their listeners and they, and they know that they have a pulpit and that a bully pulpit and people are listening and, and they take they know that they there's responsibility that comes with an audience. There are responsible people in the media. There's one down in Tennessee. He used to be syndicated. He's now on just still in, he went back to Tennessee. Uh, his name is Phil Valentine, Phil Valentine. And, you know, you got to love a guy named Phil, Phil Valentine. And uh, he speaks what's on his mind very responsibly. Recently, Valentine voiced skepticism about the covid vaccine on his radio show and in tweets. In December of 2020, he tweeted, I have a very low risk of a getting covid and b dying of it. If I do, why would I risk getting a heart attack or paralysis by getting the vaccine? Hmm. Well, that's not expressing skepticism about the vaccine. He on his show. And as you can see, he just tweeted out to his fans that if you get the vaccine, you're risking what paralysis and a heart attack. That's not skepticism about the vaccine. Let's listen to that again. That's not skepticism about the vaccine. That's telling your listeners not to get the vaccine. Take a listen. Recently, Valentine voiced skepticism about the covid vaccine on his radio show and in tweets. In December of 2020, he tweeted, I have a very low risk of A, getting COVID and B, dying of it if I do. Why would I risk getting a heart attack or paralysis by getting the vaccine? Yeah, that's not skepticism. That's saying you have a, a chance of ending up paralyzed or getting a heart attack from uh, getting the vaccine. He even recorded a parody song, Vax Man, mocking the vaccine. Yeah, get it? The the, the Vax Man, it's the Beatles, the, the Tax Man. He's he's uh, making fun of the Vax Man. It's a Beatles parody, like you know, I don't know, like all you need is lungs or let it bleach. I mean. Uh, 
I should give him a call and, and try to get a job writing for him. He's very clever. Uh, but again, that's not skepticism about the vaccine. That is saying, do not get the vaccine. Uh, that's as clear as a bell. I mean, that is don't get the vaccine. Heart attack, paralysis. Let's do a Beatles song parody, making fun of the vax man. Uh, he's telling you not to get the vaccine. And I know that because I listened to what he said and he didn't get the vaccine. Phil Valentine wasn't just skeptical about the vaccine. He was against the vaccine, but he wasn't afraid of it. He knew from his own research that if he got it, he'd be fine. And he told his listeners that. Last month, it was reported he had COVID. Soon updates from family and friends indicated how serious it was. Valentine's brother said Phil regretted not being more pro-vaccine and wrote if he got back on the radio, he would encourage people to get vaccinated. See how we rewrite history? Well, you don't get to rewrite history on my show. His brother says if he gets back on the air, he would encourage, quote, his brother to be more pro-vaccine. Uh, he wasn't pro-vaccine, so you cannot be more pro-vaccine. I'm going to play this again because it's very, very infuriating the way people rewrite history. Last month, it was reported he had COVID. Soon updates from family and friends indicated how serious it was. Valentine's brother said Phil regretted not being more pro-vaccine and wrote if he got back on the radio, he would encourage people to get vaccinated. He he couldn't be more pro-vaccine. He could be more anti-vaccine. He was not pro-vaccine. He was against the vaccine. He didn't get the vaccine. He told his listeners that if you get the vaccine, you risk paralysis and a heart attack. How can you be any more anti-vaccine? And you know what? On this show, there's accountability. I am going to have Phil Valentine come on this show and admit that he was never for vaccines. I'm going to have Phil, Phil Valentine come on the show and admit that he told his listeners not to get vaccinated. And I'm going to have him admit that now that he's got the virus and he's hooked up to uh, an he's being intubated because he can't breathe on his own. I'm going to get him to finally admit that his words have consequences. I'm not going to allow Phil Valentine to rewrite history and uh, say I should have been more pro vaccine. No, you have to admit that you were anti vaccine, Phil Valentine and that you endangered the lives of your listeners. You were an anti-vaxxer, Phil Valentine, and you're going to come on my show and admit it. That breaking news, Tennessee radio host Phil Valentine has passed away after a battle with COVID-19. Oh, well, I guess you won't be coming on my show. Well, uh, we have Dave Cyrus, who is going to come on in a few minutes because comedians are brilliant. I love comedians. Comedians are the most brilliant people in the world. 
I'm going to talk about Bill Maher and some things he said about vaccines in a second. And Bill Maher is one of the smartest people I've ever met. I worked for him. It was the best job I ever had. He, sur- he really does surround himself with the smartest people in the world. He really is. Uh, because comedians and comedy writers are the smartest people in the world. They are smarter than anybody you're getting your news from. The good comics, the funny ones, the successful comics are smarter than anybody you get your news from. This game was a runaway for Louis. He couldn't be caught. Did he get the correct response? He did indeed. What is FIS? I was starting to write Fistula. That's my charity. Oh, your charity. Well, your charity is going to get $50,000. Congratulations, Louis. And Kate and Jonathan, thank you both. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us again today at Constitution Hall. We'll see you tomorrow. Come on. Man, I really miss that guy. I really miss him. And I also miss Alex Trebek. Uh, That was Louis C.K. kicking ass. The guy who tells dick jokes, Louis C.K. kicking ass on Jeopardy, beating Kate Snow, who was an or is an NBC reporter. I think she covers the White House and Jonathan. I think it's Jonathan Capehart from The Washington Post and Louis C.K. kicked their ass and uh, on Jeopardy. But you know what they always say about Louis? He's great in public with his hand on his buzzer. But it's not just Louis C.K. Andy Richter went on Jeopardy. Andy Richter, brilliant comedian, one of the fastest minds in the world. He went on Jeopardy. I uh, want you to see who, uh, who he ended up uh, defeating. Wolf, things have not worked out as well as you would hope for, I'm sure. Andy's so much faster on that signaling device today. But it's long been our policy on Celebrity Jeopardy that all contestants get to play in the final round. And so even though you're at minus 4,600 now, we're going to wipe that out. We're going to give you an even $1,000 so you get to play in Final Jeopardy as well. Okay. Wolf Blitzer, who you get your news from, what was it, 40, minus 4,500, minus 4,700? Wolf Blitzer lost to Andy Richter uh, on Celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, if I were Wolf Bl- I'd quit. I would just tender my resignation. He lost to Andy Richter. So look, uh, very quickly, comedians, the good ones, like Andy Richter, Louis C.K., and Bill Maher are much smarter than anybody you get your news from. But you shouldn't be getting your news from comedians. And Bill Maher, who I think uh, is probably the, the most well-informed uh, of the talk show hosts, he is irresponsible. He is irresponsible because he wants it both ways. He wants to be smart and funny, and that's okay, but he's dispensing medical advice, and he's not smart enough to do that. In fact, it's stupid for uh, for him to do that. And I'm going to play that clip of, let me play you, and then we'll bring Dave Cyrus in to comment on this. This is uh, Bill Maher 
Saturday, uh, when is the show on? Friday night. This is him Friday night talking to Max Rose. Uh, yes, I'm vamping. I'm trying <laughs> try to find this, uh, this clip. This was going... Uh, this was going so well. Uh, okay, I don't have it. Nope, I don't. I don't have it. I thought I did. Hang on. Come on. Uh, one second here. It's okay. I don't have it. Damn it! It's one of those days. All right. What we're going to do is I'll talk about it on the uh, my. Uh, there it is. Here's Bill Maher. Sorry. Like now they want us to do all boost these boosters. We were talking about with Andrew. I mean, I don't want a booster. I look, I never wanted the vaccine. I took one for the team. <laughs> OK, I don't I don't want a booster. Nobody cares. You have a couple million people listening to you covid is out of control right now you nobody wants to hear you talk about whether or not you want a booster and by the way you know who doesn't get a lot of vaccines the millennials i know a lot of millennials especially in the 20s well if you're going to use scientific evidence like that how can i argue with you you talk to some millennials want it they don't want it they don't think they need it they're probably right but i tell them i didn't want it either i took one for the team but a boost, but every eight months, you're going to put this shit in me? Every eight months, they're going to put this shit inside of me? He's an anti-vaxxer. Bill Maher's an anti-vaxxer. But I took one for the team. You know what taking one for the team means? It means in baseball, letting a fastball hit you in the skull so you can get on first. That's what taking one for the team means. That's basically what you're saying, Bill Maher, that you took a fastball to the skull for the team. That's how dangerous. That's what you're saying about vaccines. And watch how similar he is to Glenn Beck, how he backtracks, then repeats the stupidity. It's the same playbook that Glenn Beck used when he got called on his racism. He's talking to Max Rose, who used to be the Democratic congressman from Staten Island. And Max Rose talks sense into Bill Maher. Bill Maher, Bill Maher backtracks because he's coming across like an anti-vaxxer, which he is. So he corrects himself. But at the very end, he reveals himself to be the anti-vaxxer who he is. Watch. Maybe I don't need one. I don't want a one size fits all. My body may be different than your body. Yeah, I lost you, man. That's 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 crazy. Hey, look, my he, body is, isn't different. Everybody's body isn't still, somewhat different. I just read the statistics about who that is. That is pure science. I mean, that that is something that you would hear at Columbia Medical School. My body is different, so I shouldn't be forced to take the same vaccine as you. You're trying to be cute and you're rolling I'm not the dice. Trying to be it's, cute. It's, it's, no, no, I know I'm in your house. I don't want to. I don't want to step <laughs> over the line here. But, but genuinely, genuinely, people's lives are on the line, and just and exactly. just as significantly, just as significantly, our very way of life is on the line here. It's right. very important that people get vaccinated. It's right. very important that we express trust in our institutions. Right. Yeah, I'm saying uh, absolutely. get vaccinated. But if they're, if they're, I said I took one for the team. Get vaccinated. He understands. Bill, you understand what dog whistles are. 
dog whistles. They're used by racists and they're used by anti-vaxxers like you. You conveniently step back a little. I said, take one for the team. That kind of exonerates you, but that's a dog whistle. You're saying I took a vaccine for for the team. Taking one for the team means you're getting hit by a 99 mile an hour fastball in the skull so they so they can get you onto first base. You got hit by a pitch. You're dealing in dangerous dog whistles, Bill Maher. You're you're an anti vaxxer and you have millions of people watching you. And this is the height of irresponsibility. Boosters, particularly, particularly, absolutely, as the as the evidence is showing amongst those who have underlying conditions, uh, amongst the, the elderly, so on and so forth. It's important that they take them and it's important that they trust those who are urging them to okay. do it. OK, but you just said underlying conditions and elderly. Mm-hmm. I don't count myself either. So well, is my I, body different? Well, can I make can I have some medical autonomy? No. Look, thank you, Governor Abbott. Can I have some medical autonomy? Dog whistles. Those are anti-vax dog whistles, Bill Maher. Can I have some medical autonomy? Nobody's forcing you to get vaccinated. You have autonomy. You have a responsibility to get vaccinated, but you're an anti-vaxxer, so you should keep your mouth shut. This isn't about autonomy. This is about you keeping your mouth shut because you're a comedian, not a scientist. Absolutely. No one is mandating it for you in your particular position, although they might. But I do think that it's very dangerous to enter into a conversation here about personal responsibility when the truth of the matter is, is that this is a matter of collective responsibility. If large groups of people do not get vaccinated, they go to the hospital and our right. hospitals get overrun. That's why and I then use- you can't get a mammogram. You can't get a biopsy and so many other things. OK, so Bill Maher is about to lose the audience. His audience is agreeing with the congressman from former congressman from Staten Island, who's making perfect sense. Bill Maher, great comedian, knows how to read the crowd. So watch how he walks back his statement. He's he's still an anti-vaxxer. Watch how he walks back his statement so he can deny that he ever said he doesn't believe the vaccines are safe. This is very adept. This is what racists do to hide their racism. These anti-vaxxers are very clever at hiding their their anti-vax agenda. And Bill Maher is an anti-vaxxer. As we know, it can't function. So this is important that people are urged to get vaccinated. It's important that they do get vaccinated. That's why I use... That's why I said the team. Well, we're proud to have because I did it for the team. That is so dangerous. I'm going to bring Dave Cyrus in if he's still here. Dave, are you here? Maybe. Yeah, you don't see me. No, I'm running the the board here. Hang on. Are you? Please join us. Please, uh, please welcome the uh, the brilliant comedy writer. He has uh, just been nominated for an Emmy. You've seen his work on SNL. He was nominated for an Emmy. He wrote the movie The King of Staten Island, and he writes for all the roasts and everything. Please welcome the brilliant Dave Cyrus. 
funny you brought it up there, but I'm no longer going to the Emmys. I, I can't hear a word you said. I'm no longer going to the Emmys. Do you know why? Why? Uh, because of the Delta variant. Because they can no longer have as many people as would normally be there. So most of the writers are no longer going to be able to go. And you had a first class ticket on Delta, I bet, too. Yeah, I did. Um, I, Where I are the Emmys? I, uh, well, they're in L.A., but they're going to be outside now, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I'll be clear. I was going for the ticket in the hotel. Right. The actual Emmys, I could I could give or take. But getting a ticket to a, a hotel I would never in a million years pay for myself was really what this was all about. And the lie down seat. Once again, it's a kind of decadence I only enjoy because I don't pay for it. Uh-huh. Um, so I lost that because of Bill Maher. Uh, because well, really because of people like Bill Maher. Uh, and I'm and who's I'm, never won an Emmy, this, by I'm the not way, make this a polemic. He's never won an Emmy. Uh, and I'm sure he just. Oh, ooh, interesting. Yeah. Um, now, here's the thing about what Bill Maher just said. I think that what we just saw, which, of course, upset me, too. And, you know, I, I think that Bill Maher often does a good job. Of I love sure that the let me put, I like love him. Bill Maher. It was the best job I've ever had. And he's a great boss. He really was. It was fun. No, and he surrounds himself with brilliant people who he should listen to. I think a lot of people look at people like Bill Maher and even Joe Rogan, and they have nothing but negative things to say. But I think that there are a lot of people who watch their shows who could be steered in a much worse direction. And I get a net positive from people because that's just who their audience is. That said, this was one of the worst things I've seen Bill Maher say, because I see this as a few different things. Number one, I want to be clear when he says I, I know a lot of millennials. Um, he means Gen Z. He's referring what he thinks are millennials are all 21 year old women. And those are those count as Gen Z. Uh, secondly, what I think is really happening here. I think the reason that Bill Maher is saying this, I'm not going to get another booster shot uh, and doing this. I think what's happening is Bill Maher and a lot of other comedians came up in a world where they fancied themselves as plain speaking, common sense alternatives to intellectuals. And a lot of people, a lot of people in comedy have found themselves incapable of adapting to the world changing. The world changed in a very fundamental way as it comes to this vaccine. And just being on the same treadmill of thought didn't work anymore. And a lot of people are trying to, they seem to think that rejecting vaccines on some level is the proof that you're a rugged individualist. And I know other people who took the vaccine who still walk around in masks who are saying they're not going to get a third one because it's like it's too it's too much. It's ridiculous. Oh, I'm going to get one every eight months. And it's like. I know Bill thinks he did this as a favor, but he didn't. Bill Maher is 65 years old. I don't know how old he thinks he is, but he's what elderly is. And he got and he by the way, one. he got covid. They, he got covid. Uh, earlier this year. He got the old COVID, though. He got the old COVID. He got the, he got the Nerf COVID. <laughs> the Nerf that, COVID. That isn't killing it. Yeah, that's what that's what the old COVID we were afraid of is. It's the Nerf COVID. But I, I, but I think he has a responsibility to tell us, was he a breakthrough case? Did he get vaccinated? What's the story? Why did he get? Honestly, co- it doesn't matter. It does to me. Healthy. He has he's opining about the vaccine. Would you agree that he's an anti-vaxxer? Let's call someone what they are. Would you agree that Bill Maher is an anti-vaxxer? 
I don't know if this legal, if this technically counts because he's t- he's taken such a nuanced line where he's saying, I got two shots. I won't get the third. But like that. No, no, no. Hang on for one second. I'm sorry. He's an anti-vaxxer. The same way Glenn Beck is a racist. Bill Maher is an anti-vaxxer. They're they're very adept. They're very adept at dancing around issues. But they deal in dog whistles and he is an anti-vax. Bill Maher is an anti-vaxxer the same way Tucker Carlson is a racist. Or Sean Hannity. Those are all people who got vaccinated and are going around constantly telling people not to trust vaccines because they're pandering. Right. Because while they while it's good enough for them, they know that they will make more money if they appeal to the part of people who want to hear what they want to hear. And. It is extremely irresponsible because it just built. You know what I heard Bill Maher saying? He's this was him saying, I did it yesterday. You are a power freak. You are a control freak. How dare you force me to eat broccoli two days in a row, mom? This is wrong. This is immoral. This is a violation. You are just a you are a Nazi, a Nazi control freak. And I don't even think broccoli is even good for me. I think you just like knowing that I hate it. That's what I hear when I hear people make these these rants like this. Right. I just I, I just they act like this vaccine is a punishment that if you have a doctor's note or, or a note from your mom, you can say I don't need it. They didn't put out a third vaccine to make money, as Donald Trump wants to make people believe, because he wants to kill his people as usual. And they're not doing it because they want to have control or whatever insane conspiracy people want to believe because they just don't want to live in the real world where this is actually a dangerous disease that could kill them. It's so much more fun to live in this world where we're just all being crazy and we're just we, we just want you to get vaccinated because we have a control fantasy. They th- there's there's a third booster shot because the disease got worse and we need one. And guess what? We were talking about a third booster shot before Delta existed. Fauci was talking about that. He said, yeah, when you get the third one, that's when you're really 100 percent good forever. Right. People have such a vested interest in trying to stop science from fixing this disease because on some level it seems like it just drives them crazy to feel the helplessness of knowing that you just have to sit there and do nothing while the people who went to college for this actually work on this because you can't do anything. You know, it's it's just like ivermectin, how, you know, for a very odd reason, I feel like I hear Republicans saying, how come every time a, a Republican says that there's a disease, there's a there's a drug that can cure COVID. Everyone calls them crazy. But every time Fauci says there's one, they use it. And it's like it's a very interesting kind of argument because I, I remember it was one that it was anecdotal. Hydroxychloroquine was anecdotal. It's like they only liked it because it didn't come from scientists. It's like astrology to them. Like it, it's really scary that like they wanted to only use treatments that did not come from the scientific community out of just some kind of resentment or jealousy even. I mean, it's a very fascinating thing that in the future, people are going to study this a lot. They're going to study how did the population become so contrarian that even a life-saving vaccine becomes the enemy. And, And that is what it is. It's about branding. It's about proving you're a tough guy. And it's about not whatever insecurity they have about trusting their betters, I think, is a really that that's the way they kind of hate it. They hate the idea that my common sense can't trump your degree. And I 
like that, which what, what, what Mars said there was really interesting. He says, I took it for the team. So he's basically saying I got vaccinated, even though I shouldn't have. And probably you shouldn't either, but I did it because I had to. Taking it for the team. I'm I haven't played Little League in five years, but I <laughs> my, my kids were in Little League. Taking one for the team means you get hit by a fastball. It hurts. Maybe you've got Tony Conigliaro face, but you're on first base. Honestly, I think that taking one from the team means it's dangerous. Well, what what this really means is that Bill Maher believes himself to be invincible. And a lot of comedians, I think, think that I think that they really see themselves as these paragons of health that could not possibly get sick. And I do believe Bill Maher had a breakthrough case, by the way. Um, But that it was but it was asymptomatic. That was the whole point of it. But he could get a breakthrough case of Delta, uh, which would maybe not be. Um, But we don't know. Let me hang on for one second. We're not. I have a rule on this show. Excuse me for one second. Yeah, uh, there's a rule on this show uh, for many reasons. Uh, People who are not doctors. Let's not talk about. Well, I'm yeah. just quoting doctors I, yeah, and other people. No, no, no. Breakthrough. This is I not a this isn't a conversation between two friends. That's fine. I know people who have gotten vaccinated and still get breakthrough infections. Right. That is that, that's not irresponsible. It's, 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 yes, it is. It's anecdotal. Why? What do you mean it's anecdotal? You have to deal with it's, you have to deal with raw numbers. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying I, I, all I said was that it's possible. And it is. It is possible. It's infinitesimally possible. It's the chances of a breakthrough case are infinitesimal. And and the, for the record, the only uh, yeah, the, the, ar- the only argument against a booster shot is these vaccines are so effective. The booster shots may not be necessary, but that's for that. that right. Where those shots could be given to someone who hasn't gotten vaccinated at all yet. Right. But this yes. is not I'm not going to have that conversation. Anyway, go ahead. No, I'm that's sorry. fine. No, the only thing I was going to say was that, you know, there are that the people who get the breakthrough infections, it's by and large believed by the scientists that they would have been much sicker had they not been vaccinated. So the people who are saying, oh, I can get sick anyway, I shouldn't get it are wrong because those are the people that probably had their lives saved by their. Well, let's get back to, uh, if you don't mind, the idea of getting your news from comedians. Well, I mean, it's not always bad because some comedians are responsible with how they share information. And some comedians find the ability to get people to believe something by making an interesting point about it that a dry news show never would. So there is, but it, so it really is about whether or not the comedian is being responsible and what they're putting at, what they're putting first. Are they putting the audience and responsibility and truth first, or are they putting how they think they're going to be perceived first? And I think the comedians, and I see a lot of comics in New York, a lot of people are very angry at them who are becoming anti-vaxxers because for a lot of them, it's like being a black guy at the Republican National Convention. It's the first time they got any attention. It's the first time they got any love. These are comedians who were not successful until they started pandering to a certain group. And a lot of people could not care less about how dangerous that is. They desperately want this attention. And the good thing is for a lot of them, uh, all those Twitter followers are not going to their shows anyway, which is a really funny thing we've all been making fun of also. But the one thing I keep seeing is all the people saying, I don't need a vaccine. They all point out, I won't get sick. 
just like uh-huh. Omar, other comedians have said, they all seem to make a point that they are clearly uh, someone who is in no way in danger of dying from this. And it's wrong. Right. They're wrong. They're idiots. People much, much healthier than Bill Maher have died of this disease. Okay. Now, uh, we get, we don't get our news from comedians. We get our opinions from comedians. But we don't get our news. You don't get news from Bill Maher. You get your opinion. You get John Oliver, who is amazing. You're getting your opinion from John Oliver, not the news. Hey, you said something that was absolutely brilliant. You solved something for me. And I'm going to play two clips for you. And I hope this makes you feel proud. Okay. All right. We have spent five years on this show trying to understand Fox News and the Republican Party. And Mm -hmm. I always thought the Republican Party and Fox News was in the service of the oligarchs brainwashing the masses to think and vote against their own best interests so that they could feather the nests of the richest one percent. And I was absolutely certain that was the motive behind Roger Ailes and whoever was running the Republican Party at the time. Okay, that Mm -hmm. that that this this was in the service of uh, a higher calling. Get the people to worship the one percent, manipulate the people. And you said to me, no, this is all about servicing the dumbest of the ninety nine percent giving the 99% the red meat that they need so they'll buy your product. That's what you said to yeah. me. And, and, it, and, and it's really, it, it, it's making me look at things differently. This is Mo Brooks. But it was a transition. It started as one and became. Yes. So this is Mo Brooks, uh, the firebrand from Alabama, trying to, to move the crowd. You know, he's being sued. Uh, by Eric Swalwell for stirring up the insurrection. You know, he's worried that his words have been taken out of context. Uh, He gave a speech at the Ellipse. You know, now's the day to kick ass and take names. Go in there. And he's being sued for this. So he's attempting to rewrite history in his own way and be reasonable in front of the crowd now to show that he's a responsible congressperson. Watch what happens when he tries to act reasonable and come across as uh, not a firebrand. There are some people who are despondent about the voter fraud and election theft in 2020. Folks, put that behind you. Put that behind you. Yes. Look forward. Look forward. Look forward. Beat them in 2022. Beat them in 2024. <laughs> We've got to win in 2022. We've got to. You, that, I I saw that, and I I have one more clip. Isn't that great? Yeah. No, that is like the. That's exactly what you said. Is that? It's like that is that is the dad rushing to give the kid cake for dinner. Because that's what he asked for. <laughs> so I just give him cake for dinner. Well, he won't eat. If I, he won't eat anything. He'll starve to death. Is that what you want? 
He eats cake now. He's looking for evidence in his. And he's being. Way, you said Eric Swalwell, who I like. Who is that? That wasn't Eric Swalwell. No, that's Mo Brooks. He's being sued by Eric Swalwell oh, 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 for oh, for ginning up the insurrection, and now he's trying to oh, deliver yeah, yeah. a speech that he can show in court that proves no, I'm reasonable <laughs> with the crowd. And then and here's that. Here's Trump. This is it's like how the Golden State Killer, the Golden State Killer released a lot of videos of him just standing next to women he wasn't killing. So, yeah, it works. In court of law. <laughs> so this is Trump. Yeah, I saw this one. This is Trump trying to uh, kind of sort of in a half throated way, say I'm for the vaccine, kind of sort of. And watch what happens with the crowd. Recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got no, that's okay. That's all right. You got your freedoms. But I happen to take the vaccine. If it doesn't work, you'll you got your you got your freeze throws the red meat. You got your freedoms. I got the vaccine, but you got your freedoms. It's so perfect. Well, he hates them so much. I know. It's so funny how much he visibly hates these people. Cannot believe, and he just cannot believe that they they still give him their money. But you know what he said afterward? He goes, "If it doesn't work, you'll be the first one to know." And they all laugh, even though that's not a joke. These people are so barely there that this was one of the first things that I think they even noticed him saying that they just booed because it's like you said, they they can't be pushed around anymore. They've become a very solidified engine of stupidity of uh-huh. just being wrong about it. like all they care about is being wrong they just want to be wrong about everything because it makes them feel uh elite it makes them feel better than everyone else to think that well we created this reality and they just believe that everything they're doing makes sense and yeah it was really great seeing that because it showed that whenever the republicans try now to hedge their bet and say oh, i'm being responsible that audience is like no we do not accept that because it's become nothing but a lifestyle brand to them to just be against whatever's good for them to be against whatever the people they hate which is literally everyone who isn't donald trump or someone who worships him tells them is good for them and uh yeah this is this is very very interesting because what we're seeing is how much they uh they're realizing they have no power here but to be jesters anymore to these erratic people Yes. Hey, and, uh, b- b- what is Mo Brooks supposed to do? Well, he's going to be he's sued. Get, he, yeah. Yeah. He's going to we have to wrap it up. Hey, because uh, yeah, yeah. P- Peter, because uh, we didn't have you last week. People complained. I hate I hate the fact that people uh, want you on the show. Uh, it, that's it, why I do it. I know. It's just uh, but where's where's Cyrus? Hey, I want to do a sketch. Uh, yes. Let me, let me right. explain the sketch. We'll do it next week on the show. Smigel said he would okay. do it. So the idea is uh, you're going to peel back the curtain of the pitch process. You're a big Hollywood screenwriter and you're going to show us how it's done. I'm going to pitch a movie to Netflix. Right. And we're going to you're going to live stream a pitch to Netflix. And then okay. in comes. Robert, but it's a picture of Barack Obama. You know, I, I can't do Obama, but how's it going? Good, good, good to see you. I have a $300, $300 million deal with Netflix. Go ahead, pitch. Oh, wait, is this, are we just going to do a live version of the one we discussed that we didn't actually do? I, no, it turns out nobody pitched this idea. 
for the show. Right, no, no, no. We never actually pitched it, but I think. Our- no, we know no, this idea for the sketch never got pitched. No, it didn't. It didn't, which means we can legally use it. Yes. Yes. Um, so the idea yeah, is I know you're going I'm talking about this outside of the show. I know exactly what we're going for. Can I just say one word? Yeah. Can I just say one word just to see if I know where we're going with this? Yeah. Uh, Herman. We're going to do the Herman thing. Herman? Munster? No, no. L- listen, I don't care if the audience hears this. They, they, they have the. No, but you, you know what I mean by the Herman Munster. Yeah, I know. This is completely. This I came up oh, with okay. this last night. Oh, man, Here's the okay. idea. Like You're, this is you, and Robert liked it. You're going to pitch this to Obama. So you go. Uh, so here's the idea, Mr. President. You have this. You're a producer with Netflix. You, you're looking for projects. It's it's about an ex-president. Okay, like it. Good, good. And uh, he comes from the south side of Chicago. Good. Everybody can relate to that. I like that. Right, Michelle? That's good. And, you know, he becomes president and he he preaches hope and change. Good, good. And uh, then he's no longer president. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he moves back to uh, the south side of Chicago, works at homeless shelters, helps the people who got him. What? What? Yeah. What what, what the hell are you talking about? What kind of? What kind of nonsense is that? Why would he do that? He's, he's an ex-president. Why wouldn't he you move mean, to Martha's Vineyard? You mean after his president. So you mean before he's president? No, no. After he's president, he devotes the rest of his life to helping the people he promised to help. You lost me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll write, will you write that with me? Yeah. Okay, that. good. Dave Cyrus, follow him on Twitter. And congratulations on your Emmy nomination. We're going to be back. Thank you. I want you to see this. I've been learning After Effects. Uh, when we come back, we will be joined. Man, I look like crap. I look like somebody who has not slept in four days because I've been busy learning After Effects. Oh, wow. That is good for you. Wait. Ain't no party like a Feldman Coast party because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. (laughs) Am I the only one who thinks that's funny? Am I the only one who thinks that's funny? Is Peter B. Collins here? Uh Did I I lose Peter? Ain't no party like a Feldman Coast party, because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. I feel like it's just old enough to be funny again. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Later, guys. Thank you. Peter B. Collins joins us. He's a retired syndicated radio talk show host. He was recently inducted into the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. Welcome back, Peter B. Collins. How are you? It's great to be with you, David. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, the parental controls were on and I was unable to start my video and I wasn't sure I had control of my own mute button. It's all about freedom here. (laughs) So it's good to see you. How can I irritate you today? You never irritate me. (laughs) Oh, you you do. Your your microphone is scraping. I want to be like the other guys and irritate you. No, 
there you go. You, uh, you don't. You never irritate me. Uh, your thoughts, if you don't mind, uh, before we get into the let's start on something simple and easy: Afghanistan and mm -hmm. Biden. Yeah. Without, I know you haven't been to Afghanistan. I know your father dealt with. Uh, yes. But we don't know. My we don't. We can't speak to what's on the ground. But we can point fingers. Yes. Imagine if Bernie were president right now. Uh, would have he would he have bungled this as badly as the Biden administration has bungled it, or has the Biden administration bungled it? Well, I mean, and, and your microphone is scraping. It. If you could, oh, damn it! Yes, um, I, I do believe they have bungled it. And I think that it started with the failure to address the visa process for the, they call them interpreters. And I'm sympathetic to the interpreters, but to a whole range of other people who supported the ill-begotten American mission in Afghanistan. It does go beyond interpreters. There are, uh, you know, think of all the contractors who were there, many who were not American, but work for uh, American multinational companies. So there's a whole group of people who deserve to be uh, already evacuated, who are not even able to get to the airport. And some of this is paperwork. Now, uh, if we start with something a little positive, they're reporting that 15,000 were flown out in the past 24 to 30 hours. Uh, some of that was on commercial planes that the uh, Biden administration commandeered from Americans, uh, American flagged uh, airlines. Th this is a good thing. This is some progress. The problem now is that the Taliban know that they have choke points to prevent people from getting to the airport. Uh, from what we can tell, there have been two uh, helicopter sorties where they went and airlifted people from some location into the airport complex. Uh, to your question, which is interesting, and I hadn't thought of it before, but I think Bernie, number one, uh, is such a people-oriented person that he would have heard the cries from the uh, uh, veterans who now are members of Congress who started in April saying, hey, if we're leaving, we can't leave behind these people who are a critical part of uh, our misguided uh, program of occupying Afghanistan for 20 years. And, you know, Bernie is not a big fan of the Pentagon. He's tried to cut their budget repeatedly. And I think that he would have whipped the generals uh, as early as, as May and said, look, we don't know how this is going to end. I don't want a, a Vietnam ending. And uh, let's let's take care of this in advance. Now, it's fair to say that Bernie would have been fed the same bad intelligence, that the Taliban wasn't likely to have full control for 18 months. But would he have believed it? Uh, I, I can't, can't really answer that question. But um, I, I do think that, you know, Biden suffers from uh, a fear of, of the waves of Trumpism. And so bringing Afghans into this country right now, of course, is uh, verboten on Fox News. Uh, they went from 
uh, you know, calling to protect these great supporters of America to saying, don't let these ragheads into our country. Uh, and so he is very aware of the immigration issues that are raised by this. We also saw just a, a, uh, a whole ops problem the other day, it was on Friday, where they couldn't fly anybody out because they didn't have any place to take them. And that is a serious failure in planning. Would Bernie have done that? Uh, you know, I asked the question, how about our great ally Israel? Can't they park a few Afghans for uh, a couple of months as we, you know, slog through the paperwork? Uh, you know, what about our great friends in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> uh, we're seeing this fall on the, the Emirates and a handful of small countries. And, uh, you know, it's really because uh, Biden is too timid to bring large numbers of Afghans directly into the United States. Well, why is that? Because Trump took what was a, uh, a you know, serious political issue about immigration and turned up the heat on it to the point that uh, it is uh, deadly to, to touch that. And so uh, I think this, this is part of the hidden agenda that has prevented Biden from acting sooner. And we're now up against the Taliban saying, hey, you said August 31st and uh, you're finished after that. And, you know, that's, that's a week from tomorrow. Uh, how many people can we get out? How many people deserve to get out? And, you know, that becomes a huge logistical nightmare uh, that is going to haunt us because what we're going to hear six months from now is the people who wanted to get out, who deserve to get out, who didn't get out, and who were killed by the Taliban. Is there an elegant way to lose a war? I mean, we lost. So how do you lose a war elegantly? How do you leave with your tail between your legs without the chaos that ensues? We gave up. Well, number one, number one, I want to know why they made the deal to vacate the Bagram Air Base, because that uh, is a it's a much larger piece of property. It is on the outskirts, I believe, the north uh, side of Kabul. Uh, it was just, a, you know, a heavily armed perimeter fortified. And uh, why did they give that up before now? Uh, I, I do not understand that. And at this point, I don't have somebody to blame for it. Well, can I can I as I'm as I'm listening to, to you talk, let me posit something. If uh, if I told you that we were going to spend 20 years in Afghanistan and that 20 years later on 9-11, the same people we spent 20 years trying to evict are going to be back in charge. You would say that's unimaginable. So you cannot not you. I'm just talking about us, what we're capable of imagining. Is it possible that we cannot imagine that General Austin, our defense secretary, is a fool, that Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is a fool, and that the people on the ground in Afghanistan, not the soldiers, but the people who from CENTCOM who are dreaming up these 
you know, these escapades for the military industrial complex are fools, are lying fools and don't know what they're doing. Is it possible that when you say I can't imagine that we wouldn't get all the people and the equipment out of Bagram Air Force Base before we left? What if even though we spend a trillion dollars every year and what if these people are idiots well uh <laughs> it's unimaginable right it's unimaginable for us to admit well, that, well, that colin well, no, powell because because of what daniel ellsberg showed us in the pentagon papers that once you build a foundation of lies and you must continue to stroke those lies and pretend that they are truth uh you wobble out of control and, and just as your clip uh, before with uh, Mr. Cyrus of, of Trump losing control of his mob, okay, he, he unleashed this whole mob power, and now he can't control it. And, and so, uh, you know, if we're going to apply full hindsight here, Obama should have ended this before the end of his second term. And he is curiously silent. He and Dick Cheney are at disclosed locations saying absolutely nothing. Uh, even W has piped up with some kind of uh, heartbreak message. Uh, but we see the corporate media populated by the same people who lied us into this quagmire, uh, trying to explain it away. Uh, David Petraeus should not be giving us any comment at this point. Because he's working. Apologies. And he's working for a defense contractor. He's like a lobbyist now, according to the I don't interest. actually know. What yeah, Q something. I, I, he's, he's a lobbyist for Q something. I, I was reading in The Intercept. Anybody you see on MSNBC who's a general or yeah. a, a former military person is now a lobbyist for a defense contractor. Well, that's true. And they never they never tagged them with that. Right. Uh, <laughs> and And this. This was, remember, Rumsfeld hired his own people. These, we called them the rented generals back in 2003, 2004, to populate the cable news channels with pro-Pentagon commentary. And uh, these same people are being recycled today. The critics, uh, you know, we see a little coverage of Congresswoman Barbara Lee for her courageous vote against the authorization for use of military force. Uh, but, you know, nobody is really doing a forensic analysis to look at how we got into this. Uh, the Washington Post, to its credit, keeps uh, rerunning some of its great investigative pieces based on the special uh, inspector general for the Afghanistan reconstruction, SIGAR. And they have been blatant in their criticism of the squandering of money the belief that the Afghan army would ever hold, uh, that the central government could command the respect of the entire uh, tribal region of Afghanistan. These are myths, and they, they've been known. Uh, they were known to the other countries, and we've been through this before, who have tried unsuccessfully to occupy Afghanistan. Now, the other issue here is that, you know, Trump likes to tell you how great a deal maker is. We have the 
you know, deal that he negotiated with North Korea. Oh, oh wait a minute. Sorry. Um, anyway, he, you know, he set up this dynamic where Mike Pompeo was in Qatar negotiating with this guy Baradar, who had been released from prison at Trump's request, and they cut out the Afghan government, the people who we say were elected in a manner consistent with democracy. <laughs> not, not a free and fair election, mm -hmm. but just, you know, it was consistent with democracy. Uh, and so the, the deal was destined to fail. And the only surprise was how quickly the Taliban were able to consolidate their gains. But they had been working on this for over a year. Uh, and the, uh, the fact that Washington was surprised by this is the biggest and most obvious blunder. But again, this, you know, Obama came into office as the peace candidate. And then, just like Bush pivoted in 2004, if you remember, he fired Rumsfeld the day after the election. He hired Bobby Gates, the failed former CIA director, to be his defense secretary. And boom, Petraeus says, here's my plan, we're going to surge. Well, the surge in Iraq was a total failure. And so what did Obama do? He came into office and he waited a couple of months, but he turned to Petraeus. He surged not once, but twice, a total of 60,000 additional troops in two phases. Wasn't that mostly just paying the warlords? Wasn't just giving people money not to kill us? No, no. We put a lot of people on the ground. There were brutal night raids. Uh, there's a great reporter named Anand Gopal who uh, wrote articles and then published a book about the way the U.S. was, uh, you know, we had these Afghan soldiers follow American combat units who did all the dirty work. And it was really dirty, the, what went on during the Obama surges. So the, the other big flaw in Obama's plan there was that he gave the date in advance of when the surge would be over. <laughs> and, and of course, we know that uh, the Taliban and Afghans in general have a very long view of, of time. And, you know, they don't mind a couple of winters to wait out the uh, invaders. And, and so, uh, Obama just fucked that up six different ways and then left uh, a residual force there without uh, pulling out before the Taliban had been able to do what everyone predicted they would ultimately do. So going back to I was taking notes on some of the things you said, because you, you really know know this stuff. Unfortunately, you're not in the Pentagon. Is it possible that I'm going to go back to my original question? The people who in charge of or in charge of the military are not our best and our brightest. My father served in the military. And one of the things I learned was that be, when you have a draft, you get a better pool to pick from of 
if if more people are drafted, you get a better. I don't want. I don't. Want, I want to be careful what kind of words I'm using, but you get a better pool to, to choose from. And then in the ranks, the people who move up are better. Well, we haven't had a draft since what the Nixon administration. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I was number four in the final draft lottery. Uh, so we the- so we're not getting it's kind of like what Donald Trump said about uh, the Mexicans. We're not getting our best people. They're, they're <laughs> drug dealers, white nationalists. Some of them are rapists. And I'm sure some of them are very fine people. I'm talking about the Pentagon. I'm not talking about I, our troops. I, I'm, I'm not talking about our troops. I'm talking about the people whose lives uh, we put the troops hands into. I don't but, think but we're. I, get- I, I would submit that the problem is in the uh, the upper ranks. Yes. Uh, you know, when when we look, and it's not just a war porn, uh, but when we look at the way uh, young Americans who were part of what you were leading up to is called a poverty draft, the people who went into the military either in order to get college paid for or because they couldn't get into college. Uh, you know, it's no it's, longer a poverty draft they're finding, but it's now upper middle class white people who are the, the new studies are showing that more and more upper middle class white people are going into the military, which speaks volumes to how bad the upper middle class in America is doing. They, the, well, but but let me, you know, I'll, I'll I'll agree with that. I just think that the real issue is the mentality of the Pentagon. And, you know, we talked last week about how our current defense secretary came from the uh, corporate board of Raytheon, as did his predecessor. And this is not an isolated example. The incestuous relationship between the producers of weapons, the contractors who uh, service them and deliver them, uh, and the uniformed military brass is something that, that... deeply needs to be fixed. And so uh, when you have bad policy, starting with the neocons, Cheney and Bush, we're going to invade Afghanistan and occupy it, not just to go after Al Qaeda or Osama, but we're going to occupy it and fix it. Uh, And then they moved on to Iraq and, you know, really didn't give it much of a second thought. Uh, But the bad policies that the military was forced to implement, uh, they didn't squabble about it because it was good for either them and their benefactors or their futures. Because, you know, you you saw what happened with Desert Storm. Uh, Most of those people uh, in the top of the military echelons ended up working on a board or as a consultant to defense contractors making you know 20 times more than they could even as a high-ranking general so this kind of uh incestuous uh networking is what keeps it all going because uh you know look at mraps we had soldiers who were getting blown up from these improvised uh, explosive devices and so we developed a whole new generation of these hulking vehicles uh, armor plated and uh, after after just a couple of years they were basically declared obsolete 
And there, there was a story last week about how we sold, well, we paid for uh, the Afghan military to acquire aircraft that they don't have pilots for, that they don't have mechanics to service. And so uh, that didn't stop us. And, and I want to cite uh, Peter Van Buren is a whistleblower from the State Department. Hillary blew him out because he wrote a book about his one-year tour as a reconstruction agent in Iraq. And they, they built a chicken processing factory for millions of dollars, but Iraqis don't process their chicken. But nobody bothered to you know, look at the end game when they, they did all these moves that would work in Peoria, uh, but you know, didn't work in, in Pashtun land or in uh, you know, pick your city in Iraq. Right. Uh, so uh, Van Buren wrote a piece and he can only get published at the American conservative because he's, he's too uh, critical uh, for CNN and, and MSNBC. But he published a piece today that really, uh, in a thousand words, captured this sequence of events and how it, it uh, fed on itself to the point that it was out of control and nobody could really cut it off and say, hey, let's cut our losses and get out of Afghanistan. It's 2014 or it's 2015. Uh, and, and Obama, it was so clever and effective in pacifying the Democratic base. And, uh, you know, it accepted his uh, abuse of drone warfare. It accepted the surges uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and it, it lay quiet as we covertly got involved in, in Syria and toppled Gaddafi in Libya. And so, uh, you know, I, I really think that the missing figure uh, in the current uh, uh, milieu is Barack Hussein Obama. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's no accountability. There really isn't any accountability in America. I always say we 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 have what, 2.3 million people behind bars at any given time, but no room at the inn for the people who were doing the biggest damage. And, you know, I'm not for defunding the police. I, I, I just I just think we need to start locking up the right people. <laughs> I mean, it is criminal what has happened <laughs> since this country was founded. <laughs> but, but in my lifetime, the, just the shameless disregard for human life, not just the innocent wedding parties that we destroy from air conditioned rooms in Arizona, the shame, the, the, the shameless, staggering disregard for our own soldiers lives. It's. There has to be some accountability. People skate. People are too easy on themselves. They sleep too well at night. People should be shamed, not made to feel guilty, but shamed for what they've done. And 
We don't do that in this country. We rehabilitate well, people's reputation. I had a guy on this show who, you know, who, who used to talk about uh, some Harvard D-bag who got sidelined because he uh, was assaulting women. And he would say, but what's his way back? How do we? Re and I'd say, who cares about rehabilitating this D-bag? You know, they, they want to rehabilitate a certain type of elitist. But the but the rest, the 99 percent, just put them in, put them in insane asylums. That's the way it works in America. Well, uh, consider, you know, what really irritated me early in the Obama administration was after he had campaigned on closing Guantanamo and he you know, with a flourish on day one, issued an order that was meaningless. Uh, he hadn't bothered to check with members of his own party uh, to see if they would support him on it. But he famously said, we're going to look forward and not backward. And we're not going to prosecute uh, the obvious war crimes that occurred in the Bush-Cheney administration. And to some extent, that's an insurance policy that has worked for him. Uh, you know, despite all of Trump's calls to lock up Hillary, uh, he, he never had any serious criticism of Obama except because he was black. Uh, and, you know, we, we see how uh, Clinton gave a pass to the Iran-Contra war criminals. Uh, then Obama did it for Bush Co. And for the good of the country. It's always for the good of the country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, if I may. Yes, please. Um, I want to mention that uh, one of the important stories that was badly mangled by the American media in the very early going in Afghanistan was the case of the so-called American Taliban. John Philip Walker Lind is his name. He, he, From your neck of the woods, I believe. He grew up here in Marin County. And I have reposted an interview from 2013 with his father. And we, we go through the timeline of events leading up to his son's capture in northern Afghanistan. And the way the story has been twisted, that he was a traitor, many people believe that he killed CIA agent uh, Johnny Mike Spann. Totally untrue. In fact, uh, Lind was badly injured in the same firefight that killed the CIA agent. And uh, Lind's story was that he converted to Islam. He joined the army of Afghanistan, not Al Qaeda. And he was trained at a camp where Osama bin Laden made a visit. All right. And he was among hundreds of people who, who saw bin Laden one time. Well, my local paper, the Marin Independent Journal, did a Sunday feature about people from Marin who were uh, in some way, uh, you know, involved in the Afghan war. And in recapping the uh, Lynn story, they flatly said that he had left Marin County to go to Afghanistan to train for jihad with Osama bin Laden. It is totally false. And... Lind could not get a fair trial after Bush, Rumsfeld, and the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft, 
just declared him a traitor and convicted him in the media, and the media went along with it. There has never been an in-depth investigation on 60 Minutes or any other major outlet to look at the truth of John Lynn's case. And I invite people to visit peterbcollins.com at the top of the homepage right now is my interview. If you're pressed for time, just click on the link and the text that accompanies the podcast uh, gives you a quick summary of the true facts about this man. And it was just obscene. Did he go to Gitmo? No, they sent him to Terre Haute Federal Prison. Okay, and he's out now, right? Yes, he was released, and we believe he lives in Ireland. He uh, was given a three-year gag order on his release, and uh, I haven't been able to interview him or his father uh, since he was released. To be but continued, to me, it's, yeah. It's an, it's an important story, and it's another case where the media just moved on and left him as roadkill uh, as, as they pursued these you know, patriotic themes and memes to promote uh, the opportunistic wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Thank you. Next week, I hope I'm going to keep begging you next week, but not Labor Day. I'm a union man. I don't give my staff time off on Labor Day. Well, then I get triple time <laughs> to negotiate. Uh, yeah, you know, you're right. I should take Labor Day off. I do need a vacation. Uh, thank you. Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com. And uh, it's I'm so grateful that you're now coming on the show. It's so great. Well, I'm enjoying it. And thank you very much, David. Thank you. And thank you, Tom Weber, for introducing, uh, reintroducing us. Well, Erica Smith, Senator Erica Smith, is running for election to the U.S. Senate to represent North Carolina, and she is going to join us when we come back. I hope she's here. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and you can get this show wherever you get your podcasts. Uh Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, Google Play, where wherever there's a wherever there are podcasts, we're there. And we have a YouTube channel and this tired face. I'm looking at myself. I was up all night teaching myself after effects and I should not be doing this. Nobody cares about learning after effects, but I have obsessive compulsive disorder. When we come back, we will uh, talk to Senator Smith. We'll be right back. God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. 
He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. I don't Critical race theory is very good, very informative. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate Thank you, Mark. It. On, the, on the Princeton point here, you and I have discussed it. it at the college level, this is this fair game. Not Go ahead and do it, right? I mean, I remember 20 years old going to Trier, Germany and trying to find the home of Karl Marx because, you know, 1848, he wrote Mein Kampf. I want to know what it was all about. So one thing I've always thought, and, and maybe you can guide me on this because obviously I'm not a doctor, but when I've always thought about vaccines and I always think about just nature and the way everything works. And, and I feel like a vaccination in, in a weird way is just generally kind of going against nature. Like, I mean, if, if there is some disease out there, maybe there's just an ebb and flow to life where something's supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people and that's just kind of the way evolution goes. Vaccines kind of stand in the way of that. Um, do, do you follow what I'm saying? Does that make sense to somebody in medicine? Well, there are some... Welcome back. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please welcome from the great state of North Carolina, Senator Erica Smith. It's good to have you back on the show. You are running for uh, U.S. Senate. US Senate. You're currently serving in the state Senate. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. You are endorsed by Howie Klein from the Blue America Pack. Yes. That's all anybody needs to know. What is your website, please? My website. My website is ericaforus.com. Erica? www.ericaforus.com. E-R-I-C-A-F-O-R-U-S. Okay. We're going to try to raise money for you for the next uh, 25 minutes, if you can spare 25 minutes. Absolutely. I would love that. Yes. Let's, let's raise money for Erica Smith. She is running for U.S. Senate. You're running in the primaries. Let's just go over the the basics here. When when are the primaries? The primaries for right now are set in North Carolina for March the 8th of 2022. And so we are definitely starting early to do the amount of work that we need to do to put North Carolina blue. It's going to take grassroots, direct voter engagement. And that's why we're on our 100 counties and 100 days tour. And yes, I have a primary in March, uh, but I also ran in 2020 and I was the second highest vote getter in the Democratic primary of 2020. So we are excited about building on that momentum and expanding that narrow majority that we have in Washington, D.C., but also of all, sending someone who's going to champion uh, the working people of this state and this nation. Right. Who is the current senator that you would be? Uh, yes. The Republican Senator Richard Burr, who is retiring after this session. Ignominiously. Right. He, he had some financials. Yes. He, he traded on information regarding COVID. Right. And he was sitting regarding on the Intelligence COVID, Committee. Yes. 
Yes, and he was the head of the intelligence committee. So he ultimately, as a, uh, um, a cause of that, he had to step down from his chairmanship, and he's not running for re-election. Right, and he was one of the good Republicans during the run-up to the impeachment in 2019. That's how bad the Republican Party is. He, uh, Burr was actually, there was Devin Nunes in the House who couldn't be trusted, but Burr, as co-chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, did try to get to the bottom of uh, what was going on with... He did. Yeah. He did. But that's not saying much. Are you worried about the Republican Party? Howie Klein once said to me, and I can't believe I'm saying we're losing one of the good ones, Bill Burr. I mean, it's just... Uh, Howie Klein said to me, don't wish bad on the the somewhat decent Republicans, because all that's going to be left are the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gateses and the Lindsey Grahams. Uh, do you want to prop up the do we have to do we have to prop up the Republican Party to make sure what, what are we going to do about them? We should not have to prop them up, but I am definitely concerned about Republicans who will not follow the Constitution that they swore to. Um, many of those Republicans saw the loss of lives of of um, Capitol Police who were defending them on January the 6th. And the fact of the matter is those same Republican leaders that took an oath to uphold the Constitution did not do so when it came to looking into the insurrection and holding those responsible who need to be held responsible for trying to overthrow our government. Right. You could end up winning. Uh, Tom yeah, Tillis. I hope so. Yeah. Cal Cunningham, a, a deeply flawed Democrat, almost got elected to the Senate as a Democrat. Uh, he almost beat uh, Tillis, Tom Tillis. Yes. Uh, Cal had he a problem. Cal Tillis. had a problem with yeah. a zipper, right? Uh, well, one would say that, but he definitely had a critical lapse in judgment, um, and that cost us that election in November. But North Carolina, we're primed. We are really a purple state by registration. And so if we can get the folks in D.C. to understand what it means to support the new face of electability in the South, someone who can close that rural-urban divide and do exactly what Stacey Abrams and the five Black women with the New Georgia Project were able to do in Georgia. North Carolina is a very rural state, and the only way we can expand that Democratic majority is to be able to um, do outreach, direct voter engagement, and pull folks off the sidelines in marginalized communities, rural communities who've been left behind. North Carolina, if I remember, President Obama, did he win North Carolina in 2008 and lose it in 2012? Yes, he lost it narrowly in 2012, but he won it in 2008. Um, Trump won North Carolina in 2016 and 2020. Mm -hmm. Why did Obama lose North Carolina in 2012? I remember he fell in love with North Carolina and he and 
Michelle talked about moving to North Carolina. Do you remember that? I remember his love for North Carolina. We certainly and certainly hope um, one of my favorite first families would relocate to North Carolina. So maybe that's still on the table. But, but didn't North he North talk about didn't he talk about moving? Didn't he talk about moving to North Carolina? I heard that once. Yes. Right. He spent a lot of time here campaigning um, in the 2012 election cycle as well as 2016. And so uh, he's very fond of North Carolina. North Carolinians are fond because of Obama. What kind of difference do you think it would make in Democratic politics if beloved figures like Barack Obama and Michelle relocated to North Carolina, kept their promise? They have as they have the influence in their post-presidency to move North Carolina towards the blue, don't you think? I think they would, but um, any Democratic leader who understands the value in reaching out and expanding every small dot of blue. President Obama was very effective when he was campaigning in Iowa. And for that to be a rural state, some of those challenges that he faced, he would be able to navigate in North Carolina and strengthen our dynamics as a party of being able to do that. Um, North Carolina has not done so well. You know, Dave, as a matter of fact, I am the only, um, I'm the only Democrat who was rep- um, elected in the 2016 and 20. 2018 uh, gerrymandered districts who represents a 100% rural district in North Carolina. I represented eight counties in Northeastern North Carolina in 2016, and I represented six counties uh, in rural North Carolina in the 2018 partisan gerrymandered districts. And so what we need to do um, in order to promote growth of um, Democrats all over the state is to have people like President Obama and Party leadership in the DNC invest in organizing, making that direct voter contact. I mean, we saw how that was done in Georgia and what a difference Georgia made. They saved democracy, not only in the election of President Biden and delivering on the electoral college votes that we needed, but uh, in January uh, with the historic U.S. Senate elections of U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock. And um, let me ask you about is it the Reverend Raphael Warnock? Reverend Raphael Warnock, yes. Yes, and and he preaches from the same pulpit as Dr. Martin Luther King did. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And you have a master's in divinity. Yes, I have a master's in, in divinity and religious studies, and I have served as an ecumenical leader in the state for the last 20 years, ordained through the General Baptist. And that's what has empowered me to be able to message um, to a broad working class and diverse coalition. Right. So are are you a reverend? Are you a minister? Yes, I'm, I am ordained through the General Baptist. And uh, so I've been an assistant pastor of a church and now an associate minister for the last 21 years in the state of North Carolina. And why why do the Republicans seem to have a stranglehold on Christ? And by stranglehold, I mean they're strangling him. They're, they're destroying Christ. Why do they get to call themselves the party of Christ? 
Um, we, we should no longer allow them to do that. We should not concede the, for me, it's the religious left. Because as we understand it, um, there have been a lot of problems with the evangelical movement embracing President Trump and all of his misconduct that flaunts the teaching of Christ. So for us, I have a concentration in Christian ethics. And for me, it's about building a better society, building stronger communities through liberation theology and understanding the importance of fighting for all of us to be treated created we're all created equal so we should certainly be treated that way and for me that's equal pay for equal work that's equal rights for lgbtq plus it means that you are paying your workers uh, whether they're women or men or versus all types of demographics that we do because a servant is worthy of their hire that means that we are investing in people investing in communities we're fixing this rigged economy and this broken structure that is confining people to a lifetime of debt. And it certainly means, David, I hate to go on, but it certainly means that we are providing health care as a basic human right. And for me, that's why I'm fighting for Medicare for All. Thank you for that. That, that is my... Uh, so, the... Uh, why aren't the people on the religious left throwing the scriptures back in their faces is it unseemly is no. it is it does it go is that because it's not considered well, there was a lot surrounding. Um, I, I did some law school studies and um, I, I'm a former engineer and certainly my faith informs me and in how to be a better public servant. But I do recognize separation of church and state and establishment clause jurisprudence. And I think for a lot of us on the left, we do want to respect that and we want to respect freedom of re religion and at the same time separation of church and state but what we should be using our faith for is to fight for those things that matter fight for um affordable housing fight to expand um you know pay uh, wages for for people fight for criminal justice reforms we know that desperately impact poor people and minority people in this country and so um i i look at this opportunity for the religious left to stand up and once and for all show republicans and show many of these evangelicals who are backing president trump and that entire misinformed and misguided administration that there is a more excellent way and in being a good Samaritan it's about fixing the broken roads that are all over this nation the black church Dr. King came out of the black church Reverend yes. uh, Jesse Jackson who I hope is doing well he and his wife have COVID I, I yes. think he's been treated I think his son was treated very unfairly uh, the, the black church is it fair to say they have what the rest of organized religions don't have, and that is moral scolds uh, that it, it, it seems to me, what, you know, my rabbi who should rot in hell and will rot in hell, I won't mention his name, uh, was not immoral. I used to tell him, why aren't you scolding people? It's not for me to. I said these. I, these people 
are, are for the war in Iraq. They're for, they're, these are bad. Some, there's some bad people here. Why aren't you scolded? Yeah. That's not they don't come here to be scolded. And I said, well, they should go someplace else then, you know, if they don't want to be scolded. There's right and there's wrong, especially in a house of worship. And it seems to me that in the black, is it fair to say that in the black church, some black churches, things are black and white and it's, there's there's a political morality that we see in black churches that we don't see anywhere else? There, there is a political morality in the black church and it certainly stems from us having an understanding that there is a corollary between casting our cares at the altar um, before god on sundays and then going out and putting the political activism with those prayers so we can realize this um concern by 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 making sure that we're voting and casting our votes um, at the ballot and that's how we realize those cares in the here and now and we don't have to wait until the eschatology in the after while and so what i love about the uh, political movement and political mobilization of the black church is because for us sin is about systems sin is systems of inequity that are perpetuated in this country upon communities of color upon black and brown people and for white people uh, for that matter so our campaign um, is very much in the direction of a moral movement um, under the leadership of, of Dr. Barbara Bishop William J. Barber who's done phenomenal work around the Poor People's Campaign um, I have followed his work for years and um, been a participant in the marches and in the movement and in the activism and in um, promoting policies that address those cares that we pray about on Sunday, but we go out the other uh, six days of the week and we fight for those changes. And so I'm very inspired by the work of Reverend Jesse Jackson. He attended my alma mater. And in fact, he was a former student body president. His son um, was a former student body president. And I was a student body president at North Carolina A&T three years after Jesse Jr. was the student body president. So really excited about um, his leadership and how he's inspired generations coming behind him, myself included, and praying for his family as they fight through COVID. Yeah, I remember I saw him speak at the Democratic Convention in San Francisco in 1984. And mm -hmm. uh, I thought, this is this is an amazing, there'd be no Barack Obama without the Reverend yes. Jesse Jackson, who shows up uninvited when, when people, you know, I belong to the Writers Guild of America. And when we went on strike in 2007, 2008, he walked the picket lines with, you know, I, I remember thinking he shows he shows up. He shows up for everybody. I couldn't believe um, So the uh, you're you're you stir, you serve in the state Senate of North Carolina. It's a rural district. Yes, that's a hard win, a rural district, isn't it? It's easy to win in the city. You, you got to meet. You have to get in your you can't walk around. You have to. Right. Uh, 
what how, how many terms have you served in the in the uh, okay I, I i've served for three terms in the north carolina senate prior to that i was on my local school board for six years and prior to that i served as a party officer for 12 years getting democrats elected up and down the ticket and as i shared earlier um you can't run for two seats at the same time in north carolina so my term ended december of 31st of 2020 um but i uh was the only democrat in the north carolina state Senate who was elected uh, who represents a 100% rural district of the 100 counties in North Carolina 80 of them are rural and they're all represented by Republicans because uh, Democrats we need to expand our voter base outside of the urban centers outside of Wake County and, and Mecklenburg and it's tough work because rural voters they have to see you they have to be able to speak with you you have to be able to drive around and that's why we're on our 100 counties and 100 days tour um when i ran in 2020 dave i was the second highest vote getter in the democratic primary i earned almost a half a million votes uh despite not running television ads negative campaign ads attacking people i didn't run any of those i didn't spend my money there i spent my money on direct voter engagement and as we see now, people are realizing in leadership and within the party that that is the way to win an election. You don't win it by running negative attack ads. All these millions of dollars that are wasted on that, it's just a fallacy. And so we are beholden to the people of North Carolina um, and we are determined. We have sworn off corporate PAC money, fossil fuel money. We only accept money from grassroots donors. That's what this race is about for us. That's what our campaign is about. So we are traveling around and we are looking people in their eye and finding out what they want to see in the next U.S. senator, but also finding out the things that concern them. Uh, senator, uh, I've come around to a way of thinking. I've changed. And I used to say that character doesn't count. I used to say Jack Kennedy didn't have character. He cheated on his wife, blah, 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 blah. Lyndon Johnson didn't have character. I used to say this, and a lot of Democrats said this when Bill Clinton was being impeached for Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. We used to say, who cares about the president's character? It's garbage in, garbage out. Just feed his positions into the... Com Are you there? Did I lose you? No, wait, I'm here. Okay. Mm -hmm. That... I, uh, that it just matters what the man is for, what he stands for, not his character. And over time, I've learned no character counts because government is nuanced and complicated, too complicated for normal people to understand. It requires a person with character to level. I'm going to bring David Cobb in here. I want you to meet him, if you don't mind, Senator Erica Smith. Yeah, I don't mind at all. David Cobb, who ran for president in uh, 2004 on the Green Party presidential ticket. He was Ralph Nader's Texas uh, campaign chairman. He's an environmental activist, very active with the Green wow. Party and uh, Native Americans in Humboldt County, California. So uh, I hope I have a feeling David is going to fall in love with you and he's not going to leave you alone. And that's a good thing. Uh, let me just okay. finish up. Let me just finish up this thought about character. Uh, character counts because in the end, it's about judgment. And and so it's why the Democrats lose in the rural areas. 
because not to besmirch my party, it's made up of resume builders who really don't. I'm not talking about you, although you do have an amazing resume. Thank you. Uh, it's made up of resume builders like Bill and Hillary and Al Gore and the Obamas who know what to say and how to say it. But they don't have the character. There's something missing. They are not committed to the land, to the people of the land, the salt of the earth. And, and the rural voter sees that. It's a serious, and, you, and you're able to win the ground game, literally. Can you speak to that? Can you, can, can you speak to why some uh, technocrat from Harvard who's just passing through is sent down to the district you represent and he couldn't care less about those people? They're just a stepping stone. They step on and over on their way to the corner office at some lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. The voters get that, don't they? The voters do get that. And, I, and for me, that is the biggest problem that we have and the biggest reason why we've been losing election after election after election. In North Carolina, Democrats have only won 10 of the last 12 U.S. Senate races. And this is why there are too many people who have gone to D.C. and they have forgotten the people who worked hard to send them there. They're not there to fight for the average North Carolinian. They're there to fight for corporations. They're there to fight for tax cuts for the wealthy. And the fact of the matter is our government does not work for you unless you're wealthy or well connected. And so for many rural voters, that is what has been disenfranchising. That is why so many rural communities have been left behind. For me, it's about understanding the importance of integrity and having the character, because one thing my dad taught me, who was in the United States Air Force and he's transitioned now, but he, you know, my sisters and I are five girls and one boy. We all hyphenated our names when we got married. And so, um, and the reason we did that in honor for him is because he taught us that a good name and a record of service are two things that no amount of money can buy. And we have seen time and time again how um, our party, and even in the state of North Carolina, they have gone with a cookie-cutter notion of electability. They have pulled out what you call just a resume person, and no one who has the lived experiences that the majority of the voters have experienced in this state. And, you know, I, I fight because policy is so personal for me because I've had to navigate a rigged economy. I've had to navigate a broken healthcare system. I've had to navigate um, global warming and how we need to take bold climate action because of the environmental racism that my community that I lived in has experienced as early as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement in Warren County where you had toxic PCB dumping. And so when you when you have these issues and you have these folks who really just want someone who's going to fight for them, when is the average everyday um, hard-working family going to get their bailout. You know, we, we have a government that can bail out Wall Street, but can't bail out Main Street by canceling student loan debt. 
because obviously getting a college degree, which is a way to, to change your socioeconomic status, but obviously getting a college degree in this country confines you to a lifetime of debt. You know, healthcare is a basic human right, but there are so many families who have gone bankrupt myself included because someone got sick or they can't have to ration insulin to put food on the table. So that's where the character and the integrity comes in. Understanding that you are sent to Washington, D.C. or whether it's the state capital or whatever state you're living in, you're sent there to do the best good for the most. And the only way that we can do that is to address this extreme income inequality that is causing people to really suffer all over the nation. Okay. Uh, We're going to wrap it up. I'm going to beg Morris to get you back on. Uh, It it is an honor. I mean, it is an honor to to spend time with you. And and on behalf of my audience, thank you. And they're going to this is how they're going to thank you. They're going to go to Erica for us dot com. E-R-I-C-A for us dot com. And you're going to donate money. Do you take you don't take yes. corporate don't you don't take corporate right no money from fossil fuel executives no corporate PAC money and we just kicked off today a brand new initiative day for every dollar that's donated to this campaign we are going to knock on a door in a county in North Carolina that Trump won in 2020 so if you donate one dollar we'll knock one door five dollars five doors twenty dollars twenty doors and we are going to invite one more person to become a part of the movement for real structural change. That's what this is about. We're closing these gaps. We're having these conversations so we can expand. No no small dot of Democrats or a small dot of blue is too little for us to grow and for us to expand. And we're having these conversations on the ground. We're traveling all over. We will knock a door. So please go to our website and donate or you can text JOIN. Text J-O-I-N to 51550. We're working hard, day for an America that works for us, an America that invests in us, an America that sees us, and can't even spell America without Erica. <laughs> that was fantastic. One of us for all of us. Thank yeah. you. Well, give me the text one more time, because that's something I don't understand. You can text JOIN, the word J-O-I-N, text JOIN to 515 Five zero, and then we'll to, let you know where we are. Mm-hmm. Join. join to five one five zero, and five go zero. to go. Okay, I'm going to pitch for you. Thank you, Senator thank you. Smith. From the bottom of my heart. Thank, thank you. you. So great. Thank you. I'm going to lecture Bye-bye. my audience for a second. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Uh, David Cobb joins us. He ran for president in 2004 as the Green Party presidential candidate, and he's an environmental activist. He's an attorney, but we don't hold it against them. Before you talk, David Cobb, I'm going to put you in touch with Morris Katz. Her, I think he's her campaign director. I don't know if I got the name right, but Erica for us, E-R-I-C-A. F-O-R-U-S dot com. Join our moral movement. Together we can create a North Carolina that works for everyone. That's her motto. Join our moral join our moral movement. I don't ask you for much on this show. I really don't. I don't I'm not trying to sell you anything. We don't run commercials. 
go to Erica for us and donate to Senator Erica Smith so she can go to Washington. She's endorsed by Howie Klein and the Blue America PAC. If she's endorsed by Howie Klein, that's all you need to know. Let's get some money to Erica for us.com. David Cobb. Welcome, sir. Thank you. I, boy, I wish I had come on earlier to hear a bit more, but I got to tell you what I heard at the very end of it sure made my populist, progressive, rural heart happy. Like, yeah. uh, that, that lady understands how to talk to ordinary uh, working class folks. Something that, by the way, like most Democrats can't do anymore. They just don't know how. They don't want to. They don't want to. They're not interested in people who don't have their ambition. It's a party of the ambitious. I hate the ambitious. And in fact, uh, like, let's just be clear. Like, the do you know that in the city of Buffalo, the Democratic Party establishment is still trying to defeat the working class champion, India Walton, who is a member of the Democratic Party? Right. And a socialist and a socialist and a socialist, but a democratic socialist of America. The point is that they would rather join forces. The Democratic establishment, not rank and file Democrats. This is something we've talked about this before, David Feldman. I really want your audience uh, and you and me and everybody to have real clarity here as a green. I know that progressive Democrats and I have so much in common. We have so much alignment. We have so much reason and need to work together. So I make a distinction. I never talk about, quote, the Democrats. I always try to say the progressive, and it's not even the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? Because the rank and file membership of the Democratic Party are infinitely more progressive than the neoliberal corporatists who run the party apparatus. And we're seeing that happen in Buffalo with what they're trying to do to India Walton. And can we just see these right-wing Democrats in Congress and what they're trying to do around the reconciliation vote? Like, I think it's really like, again, I'm a green, but I'm not a partisan green. I am a progressive. I am somebody who wants to make people's lives better right here, right now. And elections matter. I get involved in elections, but I'm not an electoral fetishist. We've got to have movements that are rooted in our community that go to working class people and black and brown people um, and immigrants and say, we're standing with you. We're making we're, we're working to make your life better right here, right now in between elections so that when elections roll around, we're not just knocking on the door saying vote for us. If we were really sincere about that level of movement building as progressives, we'd own this country. Right. Right. How are you holding up? It's the well, we're coming to the end of August and it is it has been a horrific week. Uh, Afghanistan and climate change. Uh, we've put Vietnam syndrome behind us. I want to congratulate Biden and Trump. Remember Vietnam syndrome where America thought they could never recover from Vietnam. Well, we've put that behind us. We've got something far worse, uh, Afghanistan and climate change. Are we a lumbering giant? Why can't 
Well, what are your thoughts? How do we snap out of this? There's a couple of things, David. I, I think that, uh, like, here's the problem. Like, let's make make no mistake about it. Uh, uh, the Taliban are a problem, right? But U.S. foreign policy is actually based on empire. But it's not an old-style nation-state type of empire. It's a corporate empire. So that empire is certainly, uh, it's funded by US tax dollars. That machine, that empire and imperial machine is greased with the blood, sweat and tears of American service personnel and the black and brown people that they oppress. But it's not for the benefit of any kind of quote, American, any- They're multinational corporations. The only people. Exactly. The only people who the only people who benefited from that horror in Afghanistan were the contractors and the 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 recipient, the people who like and remember, Eric Prince doesn't even live. Eric Prince gave up his his citizenship. He lives in UAE or Dubai now. Right. The the head of Blackwater. Like this is absurd. He's not even an American citizen anymore. I mean, and, and they just they, they they pillage and plunder the American Treasury. And you know what? Let's not call these corporate contributions. Right. Uh, they are investments. Right. Like they and if you there, there's plenty of data, actually, that you can look and see, like what an amazing rate of return these corporations are getting. And we have to be clear, they are donating to both Republicans and Democrats. And that's the problem. Right. That we have allowed these. Uh, this this we basically legalized bribery in this country um and it's why we're seeing this sort of horror show and absolutely afghanistan was a horror for the entire 10 plus years that it actually uh went on and so like i'm all for dismantling the 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 u.s military empire uh that exists all across the country uh, and Again, the climate crisis is intimately tied to this, David, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. I mean, I'm here in Northern California. This state is on fire, and the entire West is in yet another world record drought. I mean, we have, and the UN, my God, did you read the UN report? Like, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, uh, but the UN report is a code red emergency call to humanity. These are scientists. Like they never talk like that, David. I've read these friggin' reports before. This never happens. This is the functional equivalent of scientists yelling and screaming and jumping up and down. And I don't see, frankly, uh, President Biden or uh, with the exception of the squad, I see almost nobody in Congress, including in the Democratic Party leadership, taking it seriously. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the left. The left talks about internationalism, that that you can't have a leftist movement without looking at other leftist movements around the world and feeling some kind of solidarity with these leftist movements. And of course, paying attention to what we do overseas, what America does overseas. And you touched on something really important. People who aren't leftists very much have an international view. The the capitalists 
have a, are, are internationalists, are globalists. You just pointed out that, you know, even a company like Apple, which needs rare earth in Afghanistan and Tajikistan and uh, they're not an American company. They 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 offshore their profits. They they they're in Liechtenstein. They have headquarters in Ireland. They they have the they call it the Irish double dip or something where they don't pay. They're, they're not repatriating their international profits. They're not an American company. Google is not an American company. None of them are. These are right? multinational corporations. That's why they're called multinational corporations, right? The, 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 and I think this is a really important point that you're making. No, you're making it. I'm just well, spitting it back for the exam. It's an important part of our conversation. Right. And I think that the audience of the David Feldman show, uh, like we collectively have to really get clear on the left that actually we we like I was in the 1990s, I was part of the global justice movement. I always said, no, 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 I'm not an anti-globalist. Uh, like I wanna globalize food and culture and music and justice. Like, you know, like, like, like those are the things that we wanna do. But what we've allowed to happen is a neoliberal model. And remember neoliberalism is just basically markets good, democracy bad, right? Like that's, if you really want to understand what neoliberalism is, uh, it is every, like privatize everything, send it to the markets. And here's the problem, David, that whenever you deal with things that are human needs and human rights, like access to clean water or clean air, like healthcare, like education, uh, like access to art and culture, see, these things should never be commodities that are merely bought and paid for at a profit. And that's the problem. We're gonna have to come to terms with the fact that capitalism as a, as a political economy, right? As an economic system, it's literally destroying the planet. And it's, it is an amoral function. Uh, and that, that at the end of the day, we need to build a grassroots movement that educates ordinary people that their best interest for survival is to actually come together. And you know, David, I often say that I'm a prepper. Like I'm a community prepper. I'm preparing my community for the climate refugees. Sometimes people call them fire evacuees. I'm gonna call them what they are. They're climate disaster refugees that are, they came in last year, they're coming in this year, there's gonna be more and more of them. Like we have got to unite our community to take care of each other. And you know what? This notion that somehow you can get enough food and enough guns and go to war against your neighbors to survive this disaster that's coming, that's just flat out wrong. The only thing that we can do is to collectivize ourselves, to prepare our communities, to, to show that we can meet our needs, to live rich and meaningful lives, to not just survive, but we can still thrive. But we can't do it if we allow a billionaire class to continue to enclose wealth, power and decision making authority. It, like we have. So this is where the left and right. This is where the left meets the right. This is where it's a dangerous territory, what you're talking about, because you're living in Humboldt. 
you're being ravaged by the fires. We have, I'm repeating what you just said, climate refugees down in Los Angeles and San Francisco where the neoliberals, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Jeffrey Katzenberg's drive around in their Mercedes and say, wow, we have a problem with homelessness. Let's get to the bottom of it. But we know who's creating the homeless. You are Jeffrey Katzenberg. You are Nancy Pelosi. You own apartment buildings and you charge too much and you don't want to pay your fair share of taxes, which means we don't have low income housing. Nobody's building low income. David Feldman, like again. Hang on, hang on. And of course, climate refugees. Nobody's willing to talk about the dirty, dark secret of the homeless, especially in Northern California and Central California. Paradise is over as a city. Some of them move to Chico. Yeah. Some of them don't have any money. So they live on the streets of Chico. We have a new, not so new class of homelessness who did, who you can't call mentally ill. You can't call them a veteran who served, who committed the crime of serving loyally in our military. Uh, You can't accuse the homeless, some of these new homeless of not taking their meds. This is, as you point out, these climate refugees are purely a function, a result of capitalism, of climate change, and then capitalism not willing to provide housing for people who, are, who have been victimized by the oil companies. Well, David, that's right. And I think that like, we need to come really I just have clarity on the ecological crisis. It's not coming, it's here and getting worse. Then there is the economic crisis of late stage capitalism basically turning on itself, right? And that those two crises are creating the political crisis known as emerging fascism. And when you talk about the left and the right uh, sort of coming together. See, I'm just trying to do my best to talk common sense to, to ordinary working class people because I know that if somebody with my progressive left orientation doesn't, then they will fall victim to the fascists who try to win them over into their worldview. You see, the neoliberal center is is collapsing, David. Like, it won't hold. Which is why I worry that the left and the right are going to meet on the extreme end of the spectrum and not in the center. Well, if by the center you mean like common sense understanding of how to have a democracy function, that's one thing. But I'm using the center as the neoliberal like idea of how to sort of hold the thing together. I just don't think that it's possible. And like so what you're describing, what you're describing in Humboldt is very scary because on one side you have. Well, let's not talk about Humboldt. Let's just talk about a fictitious city in California that's taking in climate refugees. You're going to have. On one side, the leftists who see this as an opportunity to rebuild America the right way. And on the other side, in the same community, you're going to have people with guns, the survivalists who 
are the warlords of the future. It is, and, and so it's too extreme weather creates extremist possibilities. And I don't think this country has the vocabulary to deal with that. They just have a jackboot. Well, uh, are you scared up there at all? Honestly, how scary is it up there to be? Listen, listen, it it is either no more or nor less scary to be here than anywhere uh, in this country. Uh, And I can tell you that I know how to talk to ordinary folk, uh, working class people, uh, about what is happening. And, you know, I look, I genuinely believe that most human beings are neither angelic nor demonic, right? right? Most human beings are basically decent folk uh, who, who want to care for their family, who, who want their children to have a better life. You know, they're not, you know, they're, they're neither Hitler's nor Mother Teresa's, right? Like most people, the problem is and even Mother Teresa wasn't even Mother Teresa wasn't a Mother Teresa. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I've actually seen some of that. It's kind of horrific. So let's let's pick another person to to canonize. But but, so your point is well made. But I don't want to get off this point. You see, the incentives in our political economy is incentivizing the wrong things. Did you know that there are more empty houses than there are houseless people in this country? That's true in this country. It's true in every state of the union, every county. The problem is not a housing inventory problem. It's an economy problem. It's a capitalist capitalism problem. Like, and and because I've seen some of the uh, discussion uh, here on this podcast, and I sort of check in from time to time. And you know, whether you call it socialism or economic democracy or decency or common sense. Like it doesn't really matter what you call it. If if you if if you go to ordinary folk and they are convinced that your worldview will ensure that everybody has enough food to eat, everybody has uh, decent housing, they'll get on board with it. And I think that we have to actually get out of, like frankly, just podcast conversations. One of the things that I think. Uh, and I, I'm very proud of, like, I actually door knock, not just during elections, trying to get ones and twos for candidates. We run canvases here at Cooperation Humboldt all the time. You know, we have a street outreach program where we do, it, we, where we engage empathy interviews using human-centered design with houseless people. Like, and it works. Like, ordinary people are way smarter uh, uh, than, than I think that most pundits give them credit for. Uh, but we have a system that actually disempowers all of us. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I got a, an email from <clears throat> David Pluff or a tweet from him telling me that 2022 is going to be the most important election of our lifetime. David Pluff got Obama elected president in 2008 then took a cushy job oh i know who puff is where'd he go amazon facebook he went uber someplace and but you know he went to one of the big corporate yeah i mean he turned his yeah so 20 you know i've had a lot of important elections of my lifetime in my lifetime 
I will tell you this about Trump watching him in Alabama and rewatching his debates in 2016. He's not he is a problem, but he may go away, but his problem is not going away. And we, we have the most important we have the most important infrastructure bill in our lifetime. And I what I've been reading and I'm going to go on record and I hope I'm right. You say not to fetishize politics. And I agree with you. I think you need a movement and you have to scare the people. From what I'm reading, and I hope I'm right, Nancy Pelosi is terrified that she has got she told Josh Gottheimer, the congressman, the, the moderate congressman from New Jersey, who's the problem solver to go F himself. She's told the problem solvers, the moderates in the party to go F themselves. We're passing both these infrastructure bills. And the second one is going to be huge because Nancy Pelosi is terrified of the left. And if she's not, if she doesn't, if they don't get Bernie's budget, it's now a budget resolution. 2022 isn't the most important election of our lifetime. Bernie's budget resolution, 3.5, maybe 4.5 trillion. Nancy Pelosi got the message. That's what I've been hearing and reading. And if she didn't, if she didn't, if the Democrats do not pass Bernie's budget resolution, they can kiss not just the midterms goodbye in terms of winning. They can kiss having the midterms goodbye. Because if you watch what was going on in Alabama with Trump and his supporters, you, you need loyalty, not to the Democratic Party, to our country. And if you don't pass this effing infrastructure bill, Bernie's, how are you going to get loyalty from the American people when the fascists start intimidating these the, the, the voting, the voters and the, the vote counters? And they know it. Pelosi knows it. And if she doesn't, if I'm wrong, it's over. October 1st, forget it. If they can't get this passed by October 1st, it's over. The country is over. So I see uh, Dr. Harriet is with us. Uh, yes, and it's good to see you. Uh, I don't get to stay on this time because David Feldman and uh, Dr. Fraud, I'm happy to say I have to jump over to the California Public Banking Alliance. Uh, we have our monthly meeting that's about to start. But I, I, I want to end with, with with this because I and I know that uh, I know that Dr. Fraud has uh, some insight here, but that is fascism is rising in this country, whether I like it or you like it or not. And it is an objective material condition of the end of capitalism, right? Like what right. we're seeing is 
the, the, the capitalism, which has always been based on extracting the surplus value of the worker to allow the capitalist to, to make its profit, and the capitalists believe that they have a God-given right to profit. Well, because of automation and robotics and technology, like the, the capitalism as it's been practiced for the last 7,500 years, it will not continue. So it's like the political economy is going to shift. Now I'm working hard to try to get it to shift to a socialist one, uh, uh, you know, to a, a democratic way of organizing our political society. But the fascists have a worldview and they have a vision and a plan for how the political economy should work. And it is a frightening and scary one. So I agree with you, David, that, that we've got to win people over to the idea of socialism, the idea of economic democracy. We can, like, like if socialism, if you're talking to an individual for whom the word socialism shuts down conversation, then don't say the S word, say economic democracy, right? But phrase it as or fascism, because that's what I think that we're really we're up against fascism. Thank you. Such such a great conversation. This is I'm so glad I get to talk to you and Dr. Fraud. Thank you, David Cobb. Sorry, I missed you today. Yeah. Oh, I am, too. Listen, uh, I send my greetings through your husband, by the way. I I hope you got it. I got them. And next week, I'll be there and hope you will, too. Oh, wonderful. All right. Well, I do have to go. Thank you. Thank you. Joining us. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please go to ericaforus.com, ericaforus.com. We want to send Erica to the Senate, and I'm going to be giving out that address all uh, all night for the rest of the show. Joining us is the co-host with Max Golding. Yes. Of Capitalism hits home. Well, it's not just in your head. It's not just and in your head. Of capitalism hits home. Uh, is Dr. Harriet Fraud? It, it's great to see you. Thank you. It, it's mm-hmm. it's one of the worst Augusts Augusts yeah. in American history. It, it, it sure is. It, it, it really in is. Our history. It yeah. Is. And so the house is on fire. And I don't think, as David Cobb was saying, it matters if you're a leftist or a rightist or a Democrat or a Republican. There are two ways to deal with a house that's on fire. You let it burn to the ground. You add some accelerants. You act like an accelerationist and say it's better let this whole thing burn to the ground and rebuild it in our image. Good luck with that. Or you can say... Here's why it's worth saving the house. Here's why everybody should get a bucket of water and put the fire out, because there's still some stuff here that we can salvage. There's still some structure here. Let's save it. That's who I am. I'm not an accelerationist. I I've read about what happens when things get so bad. Nobody learns their lesson. The only people who learn their lesson from things being really bad are the warlords and the Nazis. So I say, let's calm down, get some buckets, work together, save the house. 
Right. Me too. Yeah. I agree. And we have, um, there's some people on the left, is it fair to say? And I don't even think they're on the left. I think they, I've been, I have some weird algorithm that on YouTube, some, what's showing up on my YouTube feed and my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed are people who call themselves leftists, but they really just want to see the whole thing collapse. Ouch. And they believe, yeah. well, you know, things have to get so bad. There'll be a, then we'll learn our lessons and people will well, take. Then the world may end. I mean, I really yeah. think that that's stupid because, of course, when things are bad, they have been terrible in history. That doesn't mean people learn anything. There are no guarantees. There's no inexorable logic. And the people on the left that I'm most worried about are the ones more interested in their own moral purity in policing other people's microaggressions and using wrong pronouns. I do believe that one should be careful calling transgender folks transgender. That is important. And using correct pronouns. But that isn't what the struggle is about. It's about winning justice and economic and social and political justice for everybody together. Right. Right. My daughter was uh, telling me about Tropic Thunder, which is one of the best movies if you ever want a great laugh and it's anti-war and it's anti-Hollywood. And she watched it the other night. I had taken her to see it when she was a kid. And Robert Downey Jr. got nominated for a uh, an Academy Award and he played the role in in blackface. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that. Um, he's rightfully in my estimation i'm not an african-american in my estimation he should be given a pass i don't remember tropic thunder i just remember laughing hysterically at it and i remember it being in the right place its heart being in the right place i remember it being uh an anti-war anti-hollywood film but robert downey did it in blackface and i maintain that the the goalposts are constantly moving and shifting. And I, I think Robert Downey Jr. might be a Republican. I think all that being said, uh, well, I don't know if he's a Republican, maybe he should be canceled. Well, I, I don't know what he did a long time ago should not be counted against him. Look, I, if, if uh, in the old days, if they thought a woman was unattractive, they made her sing in blackface. You know, Sophie Tucker, when she started out in burlesque because she was fat and she wasn't gorgeous, they made her sing in blackface. She just organized that they'd lose the blackface on the door and it worked, so she got away with it. Right. So it didn't even have that meaning. It just meant cancel the, the looks. Things do change their meaning over time. And I don't think people should hold that kind of crime against someone. It's not like murder or joining the Klan. It's not. Right. And we have so many bigger things to worry about, although it is all part of some, it is all part of basic respect 
But if you're policing tiny things, you're not getting it. The place is on fire. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's about power. It, it, the Twitter mobs are about power because you're powerless in every other aspect of your life. But if you can take down an ally, someone you thought was your ally, then it it feels. um... Now, here's an example. I'm going to ambush you and you can say pass. I'll give you uh, you, here. This is what you can say to me. I can't comment on this. It's too personal. Right. Current Affairs magazine. Nathan Robinson. You have to tell me more about it. Oh, uh, well, uh, he talks about democracy in the workplace. His staff got a little too vocal. They wanted to form some kind of co-op over current affairs. And Nathan Robinson had a Zoom meeting, according to a letter that was made public by five staffers who were fired. And Nathan Robinson, the Yale Law School graduate, currently getting a Ph.D. at Harvard, this he's a socialist, uh, said, I'm for workplace uh, democracy in the wor- workplace, just not here. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I, you know, it's like those unionists that don't want their their, their uh, staff to unionize. You know, that is so hypocritical. You really you have to maintain your principles. And he is the boss. I mean, the, the biggest contradiction in our society right now is not, it isn't race, it isn't gender right now, although those are very, very important. It's that, like the Pharaoh with the slaves, or the slave master with the slave, like the feudal lord with the serfs, it's the employer and the employees. That's the big contradiction. And the employees have to get together or else, it, you know, they will be destroyed. But how does somebody like Nathan Robinson? And I was told you don't know the whole story. I, I know that he fought. OK, I don't know the whole story, but I do know that current affairs is not a democratic workplace. Yeah, obviously. Uh so one of the one I have a friend who is on the show and we were talking and I'm going to ask you a, another difficult question. So for, is it the Mondragon? In, in, Mondragon. In, M-O-N-D-R-A-G-O-N. Okay. Mondragon. OK. The big city of co-ops of 103,000 people. OK. I, I have a hard question to ask. Uh, I, I was I was talking to Ben Burgess, who is a. Marx, you know, socialist, certainly columnist for Jacobin. And I said, you know, Taft-Hartley was pretty bad, but they never outlawed democracy in the workplace here in the United States. Wasn't big enough. They didn't think of it. But we hear, we hear, and I, I believe in democracy in the workplace. I believe in it. And we're told one of the great retorts that Ben Burgess gave me is when people say, Communism has failed every place they've tried it. Say capitalism has failed every place that they've tried it. And that's not true. Communism hasn't failed every no. place. 
So it happens. China's weird mixture of capitalism and socialism makes them the most. They are the mightiest up-and-coming country in the world with the fastest-growing economy. And, and so, Cuba. And Cuba. Exists. But here, and here's here's the thing. The other, the other thing that I've learned from you is when people say human nature is what it is, that's why we need socialism. That's why we need a government that regulates because people are bad not or can be bad, can be bad. So my one question is, why don't we see democracy in the workplace like where does it exist in the united states you would think well there are all sort the biggest co-op is the healthcare workers co-op okay of several thousand people the co-op movement has only recently started it was very big in the 1800s actually where there were over 200 alternative communities that were cooperatively and were mainly socialist and economically democratic, the most famous being the Shakers. But, the, you know, it died out. And what happened was in 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened, people took that model for change because they won. And they dropped the whole co-op communal thing, even though there were many communes and co-ops well, they were huge cooperatives in the Soviet Union when it started. But the United States left has been seriously repressed. And it happened in the 50s when all the other powers of the world were decimated and America was economic king. And so the, the burning necessity and the feeling of American exceptionalism was strong enough that people didn't react. And they thought that their well-paid jobs, if they were white and male, if their well-paid jobs would last forever. And the underpinnings of their social and emotional relationships, the nuclear family would last forever based on the white male family wage and whites were an overwhelming majority. That's all over. So we allowed our left to be destroyed in the McCarthy period, never imagining these others that we that are decimated will be competitors, whether they're Germany and Japan or Scandinavia or anywhere else or the Soviet Union or China, who were decimated, they were nothing. And that moment will pass, and we won't be the exception. But people can't see forward in history. And they allowed that to happen. And our left was decimated. And it only got reignited on a class level in 2011 with Occupy that Obama crushed on the same day because it was a class movement. We are just beginning a left now. And co-ops do have coherence. Mondragon's been around since the 50s. It started small, and because it was run by Azermende, who was a Jesuit priest, he got away with it. It was in an area that was mountainous that Franco didn't kind of bother with. 
because it was small and because fascist armies couldn't fight well in the mountains. And after all, he was Jesuit priest. But now it's 103,000 people all in co-ops. Right. And it works wonderfully well. So you you said they join another co-op. You said something really interesting because there's the David Horowitz impulse to yes. say, I tried it, I, 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 the left, they're full of it, they're crazy. What he's and really I'm saying is, money now. I'm, right. I'm crazy and that's, you know, uh, and I, I hate my mother and father, they were, and now I'm gonna, anyway, and that's how David Horowitz ended up being the, God knows, Darling. yeah. Yeah, he ended up being richly rewarded. Uh, and yeah. I think I met, anyway, so, um, but you said something interesting that the left start, the new left, it's a fresh start. It's 2011. And I, I, I like that. I, I, that's a great way to frame it because the Occupy movement was a beautiful thing. And I think it was successful. Me too. Nobody understood the idea behind Occupy, which was there no leadership. There's no leadership. It's a cooperative. It's a cooperative, and when somebody was disruptive in Occupy, other people just surrounded that person and escorted them out. And it was a very compelling thing. People came from all over to join the Occupy movements. But I think it put class back on the map. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad. Class repression since the 50s has cost us so dearly. And it was allowed because America's exceptionalism was embraced because we were the only ones left standing. We haven't had a war on our turf since the Civil War where we fought each other. So we haven't been all destroyed. So in terms of like what we could do moving forward, how, how to frame things, is to think more in terms of the 99%. What is best for the 99%? And I right. think you can strip out Democrat, Republican, leftist, reactionary, Marxist, capitalist. What is best for the 99%? I think right. that's a winning strategy. And moving forward, the conversation has to change. Like you were talking about these purity tests and the infighting that's going on. I don't even know if these people are are on the left. I, I think they're grifters and I think they they could be FBI agents. They could too. be FBI or they're, you know, right. Or uh, solidarity. What brings solidarity for the 99 percent and what and class solidarity, respecting all genders, all sexes all races, respecting every human being and not putting any arbitrary markers between us. And here's where I think here's where I think we're heading. And I'm going to be optimistic. Professor Harvey J.K. said something really interesting two weeks ago. He's he's a a, authority on British Marxist historians. He's written books. He's he's he said, you know, all this talk about the left it ain't shit unless you're talking about labor. If you're not talking about 
labor, 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 all the other stuff is just a thought exercise and it's a waste of our time. Well, I think it shouldn't all be dismissed, but I think labor is seminal. And I'm very encouraged by the Nabisco strike, by the Frito-Lay strike, by the nurses on strike, by the flight attendants in solidarity exacting concessions from the airlines, all of those things, which are new. There's a new labor organizing impulse in the United States because people are realizing we have something in common and we need to fight for each other. In the Nabisco strike, lots of other people are coming down and lots of people are coming down in, in the South and uniting for labor issues, whether they're teachers or nurses or factory workers or warehouse workers. That's one of the most exciting things happening in the United States now, labor organizing. Right, right. You know what Martin Luther King said? He said, if you want to have integration, your best approach is you organize a union. Right. And we started talking about the dangers of being too woke. Uh, <laughs> but if corporate America is woke, and it, and it sure seems like it's really annoying how woke corporate America is. It, it, it's, it's infuriating because they're using us. But when Raytheon, this is something that the left can use to spit back. We can use the woke culture because it is a stepping stone to solidarity. A lot of what... It, it can, can be, be, or it can be a stepping stone to, to division, this division and deceit. Right. Raytheon, that made a point of being non-divisive corporation. They were one of the five biggest corporations raking it in during the war in Afghanistan, where we wasted three trillion dollars. Raytheon's total return at that time during those the last five years of the Afghan war. 331.49% total return. Annualized return, well, a $10,000 stock purchase at Raytheon in 2001 today is worth $43,166. So, you know, that's why we kept up that war. A lot of people made money. But they are woke. They are woke. They they believe in affirmative action. All their bombs kill brown people. I mean, they do. They go out of their way to target uh, brown people. That's a form Not of because they're brown, but because they're in another country where we're at war and they're making money. Right. But you can't really. What we have to organize is that you can't claim you're woke because you're racially integrated. You have to be woke because you share your profits and your collective. You right. don't you're not among the five corporations whose stocks um, went up 10 times, 100 times over the last years of the Afghanistan war because you're a warmonger and you're making up to 941 percent profit. So what is your sense about Bernie's budget resolution. It's, it's gone from an infrastructure bill to a reconciliation bill. Now it's called a budget uh, 
a budget bill. It's I hear three point five, four point five trillion. What what is your sense? Well, it beats spending that money on another war and on armaments and on the top 20 war making corporations of the world. And I think it makes sense to reinvest in America. And I believe in Bernie, too. I think he has integrity and he's a good socialist. And so I would support that. Also, I do think that if the Democrats don't do something for the mass of working people, Trump will win again or his ilk. Mm -hmm. A fascist will win again. You have to deliver. You have to give something to people. What they have to give is a permission to hate people. And that's very compelling, particularly for the evangelicals who grew up believing in demons, believing in the devil, whose will was conquered because Dobson, who is their primary child-rearing authority, says, has a whole book, How to Conquer Your Child's Will. And the point is, use physical punishment, just like was used on Donald Trump, and conquer their will. And so that kind of all or nothing, these people are bad people, these people are good people, those refugees at the border are the other, the bad other that you can hate, is a real hate fest. And he gives people a permission to hate. He sure doesn't give them any material advantages, but he gives them that very compelling permission. I, I just I, I, I'm yes. sure I'm sure somebody else has come up with this. But I just made a note. If you can teach people there's a devil, you can also teach them who the devil is. Somebody else must have said that. Well, I don't know. It's very wise because also the devil can shift. It's the Mexicans, those rapists and thieves coming across the border. They're bad people. They're coming to get us. You know, it's when you're a kid. In a or in a rigid, disciplinarian, physical, corporate punishment household, you learn that you're either good or bad. And you learn that your parent, the big authority, is always good. And you learn to hate the disobedient child who is the other and every other person that you can other. That one that isn't you is the bad one that needs to be crushed. And these people grew up in authoritarian, punitive households. And they need someone. They need to hate the other because their lives are falling apart. And he gives them that permission. But if the Democrats can actually deliver the goods, a better life, that can't compete. And also, I'm happy to say that I read a study on religion. And the evangelical community has been about halved in the last 10 years. Right. Fewer and fewer aren't buying it. More atheist, more people identify as having no affiliation in America. That's right. There are spiritual. Many say they are spiritual, but not with any organized religion. And they're certainly not believing in that, you know, bullwhip discipline. But that makes them that makes the evangelicals even more powerful. Yes. Well, it makes them more embattled because they feel that they are a dwindling and embattled group because happily they are. But in a democracy, the fewer number of Americans who believe in an organized religion, 
the the evangelicals get even more powerful. We have to we have to wrap it up. Uh, more powerful, yes. more militant, more militant, and and they they're identified as a voting block that must be. That's right. Here as a voting block, like the Orthodox and Hasidic Jews do. However, increasingly, as the Christian right gets caught literally with their pants down, their adherents rebel. And they're reduced by their own corruption and by inveighing against sin while, you know, having being watched, having sex with a pool boy as, uh, you know, and then telling the people at the university they can't even wear thin, the women can't wear thin straps and can't wear skirts that are unless they're below the knee and there's no interracial dating and there's no sexual connection they're losing but they're the more vociferous and controlling of their minority of people who do vote as a block and therefore right. are threatening this is great thank you we love you here thank, thank you. you i love to be here uh, dr harriet fraud is the host of it's not just in your head and capital co-host co with max golding with max golding and, and host of capitalism hits home thank you so much uh we thank have to you. figure out what to do about labor day uh so yeah we may not do i don't know i don't know what to do uh thank you dr harriet fraud you're okay, goodbye everybody. Thank, you, thank, thank you thank you you are listening to the david feldman show david feldman show.com i'm running a tight ship tonight because we are uh, i'm starting i have to i'm going to go do somebody else's show at 10 o'clock tonight to promote this show dan uh, do you have community billboard i'm a little disorganized tonight dan do you want to yeah, do this this is how we're going to do the rest of the show as i see it we're going to bring in professor adnan hussein then we have professor marianne cummings and professor mike steinel canceled at the last minute which will give me more time to uh, get out of here and go do Jenks uh, show. So uh, this way we can start do a better job of people finding out about this show. I haven't I, I forgot that you're supposed to promote your show on other people's oh. shows. Yeah, I, I know. I know. So why don't we do this? Why don't we bring in uh, Professor Hussein? And then before we bring in Professor Marianne, uh, we'll bring you in. And uh, is that OK? Yep. See you in a half an hour. OK. So. Before I introduce Professor Hussein, I'm going to get a glass of water and torture you with uh, some after effects. I have to mute you, Dan. I don't know why you're showing up there. Uh, ain't no party like a Feldman Coast party, because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. This is what I worked on all weekend. My children hate me. I'm going to get some water. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. To one of my children, suck on this one. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at myself in the monitor. I look, I look like uh, like I Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. That I have that lurch-like pallor, as though I just woke up one day and realized my two degrees from Yale ain't shit, and the entire war in Afghanistan is on my shoulders. But that's only because I've been learning after effects. Professor Adnan Hussein, I, I rather look this way because I was up all night learning after effects than being arrogant enough to think that I could be national security advisor and have the blood of all those uh, people in Afghanistan on my hands. I mean, they really screwed up. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. He is chairman of the religion department at Queens University, as well as the co-host of Guerrilla History. And thank you. Let's, if you don't mind, I always want to know what you want to talk about, but let's do an update on Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I, I believe in accountability. I, I believe that if you're uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, I believe if you're Jake Sullivan, uh, National Security Advisor, Yale Law School, or Anthony Blinken from West Exec, our, our Secretary of State, and you decide you're going to join the Biden White House and that Bernie wasn't equipped to deal with national security issues. Sure, you know, his heart is in the right place, but we need people who know how the sausage is made. Uh, is it unforgivable how badly Biden and, and these uh, technocrats from our best schools botched it? Is it unforgivable? Well, I don't know if it's unforgivable. It's perhaps uh, not that surprising um, that uh, it would be messy. It would be disorganized. It would involve a lot of difficult decisions that would certainly not satisfy everyone or anyone, uh, you know, that this was the right thing, you know, to do in the way that they're doing it. Um, I think it's the right thing to do overall as a policy. Uh, but the handling of it has clearly caused a great deal of chaos and confusion, and they were really not prepared or clear about how to achieve the goal of withdrawing and evacuating everyone on a timeline that would be accomplished by August 31st. I think they assumed that they would have at least a month, two months, uh, to work in the rel in the current circumstances in Kabul of security under the Afghan uh, government, um, the previous government that has fallen. And I think the speed of the collapse has uh, exposed how uh, incomplete some of this planning uh, was. But I think under any circumstances, after 20 years of being involved in Afghanistan's affairs, of hiring people uh, to do tasks because the U.S. military occupation, the contractors, the NGOs were all really unprepared in some ways uh, to operate 
without the umbrella of NATO and U.S. security, um, that it was going to end up being a real mess to try and pull when you pull the U.S. military out, it has all of these consequent effects on other people who have been working for them, who have cooperated with them or collaborated, as they might be seen by other Afghans who have um, benefited in some ways from U.S. patronage slash corruption. Uh, you know, so it's going to create all kinds of people with various different conditions um, and a kind of complex readjustment that's that's taken taking place and none of that would be simple or without um difficulties or potential violence i mean the the, the main i mean the real question is is the current um decision that they're making so we can move on from kind of pointing out that a a political solution was not negotiated early on before the US decided or announced that it was going to pull out that removed the leverage for the Afghan national government and the Taliban to actually negotiate in the intervening months and clearly also calculations about what the end game was going to look like operationally and logistically you know they didn't imagine the scenarios and weren't prepared for that but quite apart from all of those miscalculations and, and failures, you know, what decisions can they make now? And, you know, it's being uh, circulated in the media that there is pressure from some of the NATO allies, particularly the UK, um, to uh, request that Biden delay the final troop withdrawal and not make the August 31st self-imposed deadline, but now a de facto kind of, uh, uh, you know, accepted uh, uh, conclusion to the U.S. occupation by the Taliban. They're going to regard any delay or further presence of U.S. troops beyond August 31st as continuing the occupation. Uh, and so as a result, there's a very serious decision to be made now whether to um, honor these kinds of requests that uh, for a few more days, a couple more weeks, a month. It, that's the problem is that uh, we don't know exactly what would be a reasonable time period to actually accomplish what they think they need to accomplish. But the risk risks are very high of um you know, a violent response of reopening, you know, military combat um, and um, if they do delay. So this is kind of, I think, the real question now is what decision to make on that. And this is why I asked Dr. Juan Cole. Um, yeah, last I was rewatching that, by the way, everybody uh, should go see Professor Adnan Hussein's conversation with Juan Cole, Dr. Juan Cole from Informed Comment. It's uh, I rewatched it and it's. I was going to ask you, go ahead. I had a question about it. Go ahead. OK, well, we'll get to that. But I just the, the reason why I was asking him about what was at stake in the airport, because there was a lot of discussion already. Turkey was offering to, you know, maintain a troop presence with the Taliban's permission to keep it open. Um, and so what was well, what's at stake with control over the airport? And it seems like the entire uh, fate of the occupation or, or of the withdrawal or of what will happen in Afghanistan in the upcoming few weeks has to do with who's going to control and under what circumstances the airport so that 
evacuations can take place, but also supplies can come in and who's going to be in charge of managing that process, who's providing security within the airport. Um, and I think the corollary and the connected corollary is that the Taliban right now have not really announced any kind of governance structure. There's no interim government. They've not uh, told the current uh, administration functionaries and technocrats and bureaucrats of the pre-existing ministries of the Afghan national government. They've not told them, well, continue to do your work, you know, uh, on an interim basis. We will make these announcements later, but just continue providing the services or processing. things. Is that because uh, they're still on a wartime footing that the, the United States, the assets their assets are frozen i think the defense minister under the american supported government is north of kabul and he says i'm the rightful president of mm-hmm. that there's going to be a civil war that i suspect america we're a bad boyfriend right we're going to keep we're, aren't we 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 were kicked out Mm-hmm. But we're coming back, aren't we? Well, I mean, see, this is exactly why it is very fateful what Biden does about the August 31st deadline. I mean, already, of course, there were great suspicions that contractors would still be operating and functioning past the deadline. Of course, that was all under the auspices of um you know, the Afghan government surviving for a while, right? If the Taliban take over the entire country, they're not going to tolerate it. But so the plans were that, you know, maybe U.S. troops would be removed, but there would continue to be security forces of various kinds, consulting and working with uh, with the Afghan government, providing, you know, intelligence services, uh, you know, training of troops, all kinds of stuff, but it would be privatized. And so there was a sort of back door of American corporate imperialism that was envisioned. However, However, that's potentially under threat if the Taliban actually control and rule and govern the entire country by removing any foreign military uh, presence, whether private or you know state uh, military uh, forces. Uh, so, this is, I think, uh, now you know. I think you're right that. Uh, enclaves where there may be warlords or pre-existing political figures that can carve out some part of Afghanistan to be under their authority, that that will then be a foothold, much like the Northern Alliance was in the past when uh, the Taliban controlled, I think it was about 80 to 85 percent of the country. But there were provinces in the north bordering Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, which were a foothold from which the U.S. invasion actually was organized, right, back in 2001. So the question is, are we going to see the same sort of thing? Because there isn't going to be under the Taliban controlled territories, the possibility for, um, you know, these, you know, contractors and security uh, figures to operate. And also, it seems that most of the NGOs, aid organizations, diplomatic, um, you know, embassies, they also are unwilling, it seems, to um, continue to operate under Taliban, you know. Yeah, let me ask you a difficult question. You're you're, uh, a scholar, uh, not a military strategist, although I could see you teaching at West Point. Seriously. Oh, no, no. Far from it. (laughs) Uh, I've played a few games of risk. That's probably about the extent. Is it possible that the Taliban... They, you know, in 96, they took over. 
I believe, right? 96, 97. And then we drove them out in 2001. Uh, that they're afraid to govern because they're an easy target now. Well, an easy target uh, for the American home. military. I mean, they were at, they were they were out in those hills, the you know, the mountains of Tora Bora, the in the in the caves that we built for them when they were mm -hmm. the Mujahideen. But now they're they're going to be occupying government offices that we built. That makes them an easy target for one of our smart bombs, wouldn't? Would it be wise for them to come back to Kabul and just be sitting there? I mean, we we can't do many things. We can kill a lot of innocent people, but we can blow up a building. I mean, maybe they're maybe this isn't going to end the way we think it's going to end. Well, I mean, you're raising a very interesting point, which is that an insurgency, you know, guerrilla warfare, insurgency, Taliban have always maintained a presence in the countryside where it was very difficult to identify them, where it was hard to locate where they might be congregating and gathering, uh, training and so on. Um, but if they uh, make the shift from an insurgency movement to, you know, a governing uh, state, uh, there are going to be institutions, there are going to be, um, you know, things that are much more identifiable. Um, I don't know if it's that they're uh, afraid to do so, although, you know, you, you raise a very interesting issue. I think it's also the challenge of they're not necessarily equipped um, to run a modern state. Obviously, the Afghan government itself wasn't equipped to do so, but at least they had some trained people and they had resources coming in from outside, you know, that allowed them to at least create a semblance of, of governance and a government structure. However, it was a you know terrible failure, which is why it collapsed so quickly, as they clearly weren't able to provide the services that were needed. You know, uh, but you know they might have had a chance they at least seem to have some of the um you know structures and at least some of the specialists um, but a lot of those people are people who are fleeing and who are being evacuated you know when i hear about all of the interpreters you know being evacuated you know the people who helped uh ngos and uh, troops uh uh you know uh, communicate with local authorities and so on these are obviously educated and trained people that would be valuable to a future afghan society and and state and those uh, resources are being liquidated there's a huge brain drain essentially uh taking place of educated people with skills uh who, so i think it's really the capacity question is going to be very serious in the coming couple of months but already i've heard some uh, academics and journalists on the ground uh, who were interviewed recently talking about how the last 10 12 days have been a very eerie period where people are very cautious on the streets in kabul they're taking a wait and see approach however at the same time there's no governance you know you don't know who do you go to you know if you have a problem you don't know who's responsible really for security and policing and you know all of the services that need to happen to make a large city actually function um 
And the longer it goes without um, some administration from the Taliban, uh, the more unstable the situation is going to be. On the, by the same token, the Taliban seem to be waiting and have claimed, announced that they're not right. going to make any government announcements until the last of the foreign troops leave, which is another reason why any further delay past August 31st just means the limbo for you know the Afghan people of what kind of a government they're actually going to have, you know, continues with all of the consequent disorder um, and difficulty and erosion of whatever capacity, you know, even survives for institutions of governance. The the Pentagon and the uh, America, it's all of us, everybody who's an American, even people on the right have been doing soul searching you cannot be reading what's going on and ask yourself but what did we do to these poor innocent people in afghanistan and what have we done to our soldiers and who are we as a people to have allowed this to drag on for 20 years it, it if you have any sense of decency you've had a bad week hmm. So one of the things I was thinking, and I've thought about this before, and that is, you know, grasping for something positive about the United States and our military. We can f isolate a bad actor and bomb them into the Stone Age. I think we shock and awe has, has shown us that, you know, we couldn't kill Saddam Hussein but we could turn his lights out and create a situation where a civil war could spring up and maybe bomb his supporters and help give rise to a more liberal, if not neoliberal, government. So we don't do that. We the Pottery Barn theory that Colin Powell came up with is you break it, you own it. Well, why? Well, why? Why are we fighting these wars? It's to own it. We're fighting these wars for for corporate America. So when we occupy Afghanistan or occupy Iraq, we're doing this to rebuild the country in our own image the same way we rebuilt Japan and Germany. That's our dream. That's why we have boots on the ground. We don't trust the people of Iraq or Afghanistan to build, to rebuild their country in their image. It has to be the American image because capitalism demands that we find new markets and a new labor supply. But if we were to take that off the table, you know, Bernie is our president. And it's 2003, it's the invasion of Iraq, and we've decided that Saddam Hussein is, in fact, a, a horrible, horrible human being. And, and th there's a will in Iraq to overthrow him. We're going to bomb Iraq enough so that the people in his government rise up and take him out. That might have happened in 2003 had Paul Bremer 
not been the viceroy who dismissed the uh, elite Republican Guard. In other words, had we not been an occupying force, had we just bombed Saddam Hussein into hiding, tactically, we could have given rise to a rebellion among the, the elite Republican Guard who would have taken Saddam Hussein out and they would have had somebody just as bad as Saddam Hussein in charge, right? Well, yes. I mean, uh, I'm just, I'm just that was something doing like a the real, that was sort of the realist position, uh, I think. Um, and Paul Bremer was from this real neocon uh, Kissinger and Associates. Yeah, these fan fantastical, uh, you know, people who actually don't believe in the state. You know, they don't believe, you know, from this extreme right, you know, uh, they think they're, you know, you let the market decide. You don't need uh, state institutions. Government should just get out of the way. So really, we don't need to keep these people around. We don't need to, you know, to keep the largest employer in the country, right? Still employing all these people that is in the army. Uh, we'll just dissolve the state and we'll recreate something that's a model, you know, of a very uh, trimmed down, um, you know, kind of market oriented, uh, you know, institution that doesn't, you know, you know, really have, uh, you know, a lot of social welfare programs or doesn't employ a lot of people and will privatize, you know, the water, will privatize the infrastructure. So this was sort of the, it was a kind of neoliberal neocon dream that didn't take the state seriously as um, very, you know, significant in um, social life, in employing people, in providing, you know, all kinds of services and a structure that kept, uh, you know, kept the society together on some level, even under a draconian and oppressive sort of rule. Um, so I think that was the worst decision possible, was letting go all the Republican guards because they turned into the insurgency and they became you know, ISIS, right? I mean, that's basically, these are the people who became ISIS, you know? The uh, arrogance, the yeah, arrogance. It was so arrogant. It was so incredibly arrogant. So I think the, you know, realist position of how to manage the American empire, I mean, these were just sort of two different dimensions of like the American imperial order, a factional sort of dispute, a philosophical dispute, uh, ideological dispute within it. The realists, I think, would have liked something more like that. And in fact, isn't that really in some ways what George, you know, W, H.W. Uh, uh, Bush, uh, really kind of tried as he encouraged the Iraqi people to rise up and they were supposed to provide a little more air support, get the Kurds to right. kind of invade from the north, right? And do it yourselves. Kind of, we'll be there to support and help manage. Well, what happened when the Kurds uh, yeah, rose well, up? massacred by Saddam because they didn't actually support them. But I think the theory well, was- well, we, we, we helped him Didn't we help him massacre the Kurds? Didn't we create a no-fly zone so he well, could yes, go we in did. there? We did, ultimately. Yes, we did. But I think, the, uh, I think there was, um, you know, there was criticism that really what we had done was we'd created the conditions to topple Saddam Hussein, but then we didn't follow through because we were worried about the chaos and because we didn't have somebody appointed ready to take over. And I think that's the, the thing. What happened when they brought in Ahmed Chalabi? 
is that they sort of had their appointed person that they wanted to install, you know, into, you know, in, to govern Iraq, a pro-Western, you know, figure who- Con artist. Yeah, exactly. So- Our kind of uh, guy. What's that? Our kind of guy, a con yeah, artist. Our, our kind of guy, exactly. So, so I mean, I think you're, you're right that that could have been one way that they might have conceived of uh, a more limited engagement is create the condition. And in fact, actually, what has been U.S. policy over the last decade and a half, maybe 20 years, you might say, in other parts of the world where we didn't foresee a military occupation or a real military option is, you know, these color revolutions is where you kind of sponsor, uh, you know, some liberal reformers who are pro-Western to start, uh, you know, protesting, you use the media, you use social media, you try and circulate, you know, confusion and upend, you know, during an election process, you know, uh, try and uh, disrupt the the election. This is what's so ironic about all these claims about interference in our elections by the Russians, mm-hmm. you know, all the whole Russia gate is basically we've been perfecting, you know, in the post-Cold War period ways to uh, topple various regimes, whether it's in Ukraine or, uh, you know, it was in uh, Azerbaijan or in, um, uh, not, uh, sorry, in Georgia, uh, you know, there were all these kinds of attempts to basically basically get rid of the old Soviet bureaucratic, uh, you know, uh, faction that was still part of the Russian orbit and replace them with these liberal reformers by fomenting a kind of crisis um, with, you know, people demonstrating in the streets and, you know, shutting down, uh, you know, financial flows of aid and money or, 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 you know, there's a lot of ways in which, um, you know, we've managed the Cold War, post-Cold War through these softer kinds of means. And, you know, maybe that's what we'll see. Obviously, Afghanistan is a very different kind of case, but I think... If there is a faction that is holding out from the previous government that has a small territorial base that hasn't been conquered, um, or even if they're just across the border in friendly governments that are willing to participate, although I don't think the U.S. has many friendly governments like around Afghanistan at this point, um, who would be willing to kind of cooperate, they might start trying to do the same kind of thing of undermining, um, you know, whatever the Taliban, you know, managed to put in place. And so the counterinsurgency to the insurgents' victory is potentially, you know, what is the next uh, phase of all of this? I wish we had more time. I wanted to ask you, uh, there was more. The, uh, before you go, the, for all the uh, war hawks, Iraq, in the Constitution, it is an Islamic state now, right? Iraq is officially in the Constitution, in officially an Islamic state. Yeah, I think that was one of the provisions. It's not clear. I haven't looked at it for a while, you know, like kept up with the various changes to it to understand exactly in what way that's phrased or framed. Could be much more, you know, kind of a symbolic sort of statement um, uh, because I don't think uh, in point of fact, um, Uh, It's the same. I mean, there's a lot of variety, like it's not Saudi, it's not um, the Iran, you know, interpretations of uh, an Islamic state. Uh, But yes, it is part of the Constitution, as far as I understand, designating the state as as Muslim, as Islamic. And was it under Saddam Hussein? 
Oh, of course not. I mean, you know, there were symbols, of course, and patronage of, uh, you know, Muslim religious scholars and of, uh, you know, the waqf institutions that is the uh, pious endowments people uh, make for charitable purposes to endow like, you know, a, a, a school or a water fountain or, you know, these would all be managed by the government and made sure that they were, you know, legally administered and so on. You know, so they had lots of ways in which religion was supported and practiced through the state, of course, but it was a secular state. Its constitution and its law um, was secular. And um, this is one reason why a lot of uh, religious minorities, um, as we see, they ended up being a lot more loyal in Syria to the Assad regime, partly because that is a secular state. The, uh, you know, the Alawites that have ruled uh, Syria are a religious minority. And as a result, they have uh, they're kind of Shiite, a secular they're, state. They're, they're, of, of, they're a variant of they're a right. sort of a particular variant of, of a Shi uh, religion, uh, religious orientation. But, you know, they had uh, a fair amount of support from Christians, all the different denominations of Christians, because they maintained a secular state. And that was also the, the case in, you know, under Arab nationalism in Iraq, under Saddam and the Ba'ath Party as well. And what they feared was an Islamic government that would try and impose, you know, Islamic law, but less the imposition of Islamic law than that um, there would be no way that the state would be utterly dominated by Sunni Muslims and that there would be no place or recognition of their political and religious rights potentially under that under such a scenario. And of course, their greatest fears were realized when you topple that secular state, even though it's a military dictatorship, very oppressive, torture, you name it, all of that. And plenty of like ethnic, you know, conflicts and suppression of Kurds and others, of course. But at least from a religious perspective, is other religions were you know, equal before the law and had the same access to state resources. Yeah. And uh, you, you get rid of that and you replace it with what? You replace it, you know, in, in the end with, you know, radical Islamist orientation. Um, yeah. And as a result, Iraq is no longer the multi-ethnic, multi, well, it's certainly not the multi-religious state that it once was. And we're seeing the same thing happening, you know, happening in, in other places where there were religious minorities. But when we've supported the end of a secular nationalist regime, often leftist and quasi-socialistic, um, you know, it, it has been bad for the religious minorities yeah. in those societies. Uh, let me just uh, we're going to we're going to have uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, who has her hand raised. She's up next. I think she wants to say something. What I'd like to do is be a pig and say something. That I and then turn then have Professor Marianne Cummings say something. Then we'll do community billboard and then we'll do Professor Marianne Cummings and we'll we'll end the show. Uh, so let me just say something that's uh so when 9-11 happened, there was the second intifada in Israel and there was there were buses blowing up. There were uh, there was a uh, there was constant terrorism in Israel. and I was following it uh, quite closely, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And uh, it, it was really an existential that's what they said back then. This is an existential threat. There's no way to stop somebody from blowing themselves up 
And uh, when the World Trade Center came down, many say because of what was going on, that's one theory that Saudi Arabia funded the attack on uh, America because the George, the George W. Bush administration had walked away from the Palestinians. I remember the World Trade Center coming down and thinking, this is absolutely horrible. This is the worst thing in my lifetime. My response, because I was paying attention to what was going on in Israel is, well, what we're going to have to do, look into this. And I remember this white man in on the streets of New York going, this is war. This is war. And I remember thinking, against whom? Like, what do you mean this is war? What are you talking about? Well, all he had was a hammer, so everything's a nail. That's the American mindset. This is war. So to that guy, I don't know where you are now. I know you didn't enlist uh, to go fight. This is war. You, we wanted war. We could have had bin Laden if we'd done a little negotiating with the Taliban, but we don't negotiate with terrorists until we do, until we go to Doha. But we don't negotiate with terrorists. And we're not asking for bin Laden. We're demanding you give us bin Laden, but we really don't want him because if he spills the beans, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. So uh, we want him dead, not dead or alive. So but we, we got war. We needed, as Thomas Friedman said, heads on a stick. He said, you want a piece of this? That's why we're going into Iraq. Thomas Friedman from The New York Times went on Charlie Rose. Why are we going into Iraq? Because that that's a tough neighborhood. And we're going to say, you want a piece of us? Some heads on a stick. That's Thomas Friedman from The New York Times saying heads on a stick. Uh, so we got our war. You got your 20 year war. We went with brawn, muscle over intelligence. We had a 20 year war. And for those of you who uh, who believed, as one of our generals did, that our God is better than their God. There was a general fighting that war who said uh, our God is better than their God. You ended up with a country that is now officially an Islamic state. Iraq was not an Islamic state. It is now officially an Islamic state. That's what the the war got us. Don't think we got the oil. Don't think we got the oil. Uh, we destroyed a country that had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11. And I'm not talking about Iraq. I'm talking about Afghanistan. Which Barack Obama called the good war. Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. Al-Qaeda was up in the mountains dancing between Pakistan and uh, the sucker of the Taliban. The people of Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. We're not even sure the Taliban 
had anything to do with 9-11. But you got your war. You got your 20-year war. Because we went with brawn. We went with, we're not going to be pushed around. This is, this is what brawn over intelligence gets you. And you know what? We won't learn our lesson. We never do. Because... Oh, but I think we do learn our lessons, David. Oh, how to extent make the wars last longer. Well, yeah. you know, that was Henry Kissinger's observation about Vietnam. We needed to keep it off the TV. And we kept Afghanistan off the TV. There was mm-hmm. like a post on Twitter that were just was going through all the major broadcast news and, and cable news and just how many minutes over the last several years were devoted to Afghanistan. Right. It was faulty. Nobody saw it. So you're saying we learned the wrong lessons. We learned well, our lessons, but we learned the wrong lessons. It would depend on who you were, yeah. uh, Professor is saying. I mean, uh, you know, according uh, on, on the war profiteer's time, they, they learned all the right lessons. And the thing is, is that there were no significant, after the, uh, the Iraq war started going, there was really no significant anti-war protests or movements. Except, you know, more generally in the, uh, you know, the, the campaigns of Bernie Sanders. Pretty amazing. Uh, uh, the American people, by the way, do not like these wars. The reason Barack Obama was elected in 2008 is he was prescient. He ran. Mm-hmm. It was the same reason Howard Dean almost got the Democratic nomination in 2004. These were people who had the wisdom to oppose the war at the very beginning. That was Barack Obama's calling card in 2008. I spoke out against the war. The American people were against this war. They're still against it. And the reason Donald Trump got the Republican nomination and the reason he didn't win in 2016, but the reason he won the electoral college was he lied to the American people and said he was against the invasion of Iraq. He ran against the Republican establishment, George W. Bush, and said that war was a colossal mistake. He said that to the Republican Party and the Republicans gave him the nomination. Nobody wanted that war in this in this country. It, commu- well, that, that's that's why we have to we have to uh, push back on this. I mean, this is overall a good thing that this that Biden is saying that we're going to pull out. So, you know, we should just keep pushing on that. And we don't want him to try and extend the deadline and, you know, find our way back into it. I mean, we should end this. And um, I just want to announce that uh, I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Ariel Salzman, who's been a guest on this show um, about the Afghanistan situation for the Mudgeless podcast. Later this week, it should be out. And I'm um, looking forward to that conversation and hopefully Hopefully listeners will be interested if they're still interested in the topic. We'll we'll be going into uh, great depth about um, uh, about the recent history of Afghanistan and um, the current situation as well. Thank you, Professor Hussein. I wish we had more time. I'm uh, I'm doing 
Jenks show to promote people. Uh, Dan has been complaining that I don't promote, but you'll come back, I hope. I have two After Effects things that I want to show everybody. Hang on. Oh, or, no, come on. Hang on. Hang on. I had... One of my favorite people. Oh, oh damn it. She's Hang so on. smart. I hope she's around. I hope she's around. I had a new one for the professors and Marianne. Hang on. All right, I'll play it. At, uh, this is why I look the way I do. Let it, I'm so... I have no sleep. I just... Uh, Dan Frankenberger, you're going to get a brand new... You're all getting new new jackets. You're Hello, all getting, Jag officer. Huh? Hello, Jag officer. Jag officer. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my... Uh, Professor Mike Steinell can't make it tonight. His, the person he watches Jeopardy with isn't feeling well, so he's. Uh, we we wish her the best, and uh, and we miss you, Professor Mike Steinell. And now it's time for Community Billboard, where Dan Frankenberger surveys our community. How are you, sir? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing. It's hot. Yes, I just got out of the pool. You bastard. <laughs> I'm just about to go back in there too. Okay, so I have... Uh, While you're pulling up some pictures, I, I got a couple quick things. I have a okay. Sopranos quote for you. Okay. I don't know what it's about, but the TV stays here. I don't know what it's about, but the TV stays here. Polly. And his mother and the sister and the TV that they throw out the window, something like that. Was there? No, nope, it, it was Polly. But this had to do with the coach not moving. The, uh, oh, 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 the, the soccer coach who molested the, the girl, and they wanted him to stay. Oh, oh, this, they they didn't. The soccer coach who was molesting Meadows' friend had taken yep. another job offer. And he was going to leave. So they bribed him to stay with a flat screen TV and he wouldn't take the gift. Correct. Right. right. And he also when when uh, uh, the coach Don asked him what his name was, he said, my name is Clarence. <laughs> right. Wall says, I'm Clarence. <laughs> I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a. Uh, Sopranos. I think the idea of, of them not wanting him to leave was that they the team was winning a lot. So I'm not sure at that point if they had known about the 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 trouble. But uh, um, are you looking at I my had... screen? Oh yeah, <laughs> I've been told that's problematic. Well, so I won't. Dis but it's it's Vito at uh, a down. At, at a leather bar, and uh, it's a joke. It was. <laughs> Nobody goes, it's a joke. It's a joke. There's so many great, like when Phil kills Vito in the hotel room, he steps out of the closet. Did you know that? There's so many visual puns on The Sopranos. I'm doing a two-year cleanse. Okay. Uh, I have... So, and what else do you have before we? Um, uh, I have a podcast from the archives to report about. That was a particularly good one from 10 years ago, August 20th, 2011, where you had uh, Paul F. Tompkins, his wife, uh, Jeannie Haddad Tompkins, and Frank Conniff. 
and uh, it was it was just a, a really good one because everyone was quick and everything was landing. Uh, first, you introduced uh, Paul, and then. Uh, Janie, but you didn't say Tompkins at the end, so he busted your chops about that for a couple minutes. Oh, and, th- and then and then you introduced Frank kind of Tompkins. <laughs> that was hard to try, and I was like, oh. that was <laughs> when you don't see it coming, it's great. Yeah. Um, and then you guys talked about Emmys, where those two had been uh, brought up for Emmys, and they had both been defeated by you, ah. winning an Emmy. Then you said that uh, those Emmys were for the best hair transplants. Yes, I got an Emmy for Best Hair Transplants. (laughs) And then also we learned on that episode that it was on your bucket list to watch Two Birds Meeting. Really? Yeah. You said you stare outside of the birds, but you never see them doing it. So that was on your bucket list. Oh, the birds and the bees. You always hear about the birds and the bees, but you never see birds doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I got one more before the pictures. Um, uh, Valley Vox Theater probably welcomes Oscar nominee producer Julia Schechter. They're going to be watching her documentary um, from 1997, Colors Straight Up. And this claim film is about teenagers living in Los Angeles who meet through performing arts as a way of escaping gangs and drugs prevalent in the neighborhood. And um, afterwards, they're going to do a live Q&A with Julia, plus a few of the students they're going to catch up with uh, with their lives for that very special Valley Box Theater. And that's going to be uh, August 28th at 4.30 Eastern. And you can get the tickets at on Twitter at Valley Vox or the email valleyboxtheater at gmail.com. And theater is spelled with an R-E. Okay. Um, the first pick we have here is from Tom Weber. I like, I like. Professor Marianne, have you ever tried painting? Uh, once or twice. Once or twice? Hmm. <laughs> 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 this... <laughs> Have you ever studied physics? Yeah, you ever tried physics before? <laughs> I can't remember what I was doing. Right I, I, was, <laughs> I remember your friend showed, put one of your pictures up. I didn't know it was your... I actually thought uh, Toulouse-Lautrec or perhaps Cezanne had gotten into a time machine and painted France in the... 80s. Yeah, that was Montmartre. I believe that was Montmartre. Had a picture of it. And then when he told me you had done that, I went, oh, my God. Nobody should be that talented. That was oil pastel. Different medium than soft pastel. That, that's an interesting medium to work in. Medium to work in. Yeah, and awesome. I can relate to you're an artist. You're an artist. Sometimes I write flatulence jokes and sometimes I write sharding jokes. So I like to mix Ooh. it up a little. I'm just we all have yeah. our different skills. You're a physicist who's a brilliant artist and I write different types of fl- uh, flatulence jokes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well pastel. Little, yeah. Little wetter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, and this is available over Tom Weber's site, right? Yep, TomWeberArt.com. He said that one was an Impressionist-style painting that he used a limited palette consisting of um, the following colors. P-H-T-H-A-L-O, Patalo blue, um, mm. yellow ochre, black and white. And he said he doesn't think he's finished with it yet. He's going to let it sit overnight and uh, take a look at it again tomorrow with fresh eyes. Yeah. This is from uh, Glenn Costick. He made tempura, uh, it was either today or yesterday. And this is uh, string beans, onions, and sweet potatoes. Wow. Delicious. 
that looks like it should be in a, I could see that in a bag eating a cold for some reason. I don't know why, but that that's from Glenn Costick. Yeah. He eats so well. So we're going to break into his home, right, Dan? Yeah, we're going to his house for yeah. sure. Okay. That looks beautiful. That That's that's a work of art. Tempura is delicious. Yeah. That's cocoa. Yep. Uh, this is turned in uh, by Elaine, and he's calling this one Bird Dog. Because Coco is sitting there uh, keeping an eye on his little buddy a bird right in front of him there. Aw. Lane, are we going to do the duet? We have to do the duet. Marianne, Professor Marianne, have you ever heard Lane and Coco sing a du their duet? Oh, once. Lane. Oh, my God. It's the most amazing thing. Oh, my God. I, we have to... We have to do that. Okay. Sounds like office hours five at two thirty in the morning or something. Yeah, like I that. know. <laughs> oh, uh, the Ralph Radio, uh, Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Uh, the latest episode was on August twenty first, and Ralph welcomes Stacy Mitchell, who's a co director of the Institute for Local Self Reliance, to talk about how enforcing antitrust laws would lead to more decentralized and productive local economies. About then, Amazon, uh, it's a great conversation about Amazon. Yep, there is a second guest as well, which is ProPublica's Jesse Isinger. Um, they joined to explain how Republican anti-tax groups have starved the IRS budget, which uh, leads to billions of dollars of uncollected taxes from the wealthy. And then Ralph answers some questions. It's a great show. Everybody should listen to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast. I think there's also a YouTube channel. And uh, you can get all that right at Ralph. RalphNaderRadioHour.com uh, and join Congress Club. In fact, Thursday, let's talk about Congress Club. It's kind of like what Chloe does, but instead of Chloe writing the letters, Ralph Nader does. <laughs> so that's uh, you can have awesome. Chloe, you know, potato, potato. That's right. Oh my God! Uh, this is uh, from Dave and PA. He and his wife. They're. Uh, Airbnb property. We're talking about this once in a while. This is uh, uh, going to tinyurl.com, Birdies Country Cottage, B E R T I E S Country Cottage. And, and this is in Pennsylvania. And it's, a, it's an Airbnb. It's a, it's a big cabin with a lot of property and uh, some animals around. And it's just, just awesome. Fantastic. How do people contact you to add to our community billboard? Uh, they can get a hold of me at dentfeldman at gmail.com. Um, and we want to uh, bring up again that David hasn't done a pledge episode in a while. So go to patreon.com slash David Feldman show. And one more last thing. Tom, well, well yeah, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Well, uh, I would like Erica to come back. Please go to ericaforus.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please go to ericaforus.com and give her money. Uh, it's she is a she, Erica Smith. She's a state senator and she's running for federal senator, U.S. Senate from North Carolina. She's endorsed by Howie Klein. And she uh, if you didn't hear the interview, go back and listen to the conversation with Erica Smith. We want to send her to Washington. Go to Erica for dot com and uh, Give her some money. She takes no corporate financing. Please. Go ahead. 
And one last thing in the chat a few minutes ago, Tom in Portland put in put in a call for a GoFundMe, the Nabisco Strike Fund. Oh, um, let's talk about that. And yeah, we're not doing yeah. enough. Well, Hannah is we're going to have a meeting, you, me and Hannah, uh, to go over some ideas for bookings. We're yep. not. So he, he's wanted to bring up there that they have a goal of fifty thousand dollars and they've reached thirty seven so far. So he just popped a link in there. GoFundMe dot com. It's kind of weird. So listen close slash F slash BCTGM dash local dash three six four dash strike dash dash support. And I, I figured out if you Google Nabisco strike GoFundMe, it'll, it's the first the first um, link there. I'll pop these in the chat and uh, on YouTube as well. Right. Thank you, sir. All right. Good day. Great job. Thank you. So, so long. So long. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where the peripatetic Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She is a physicist as well as a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. You're home. Yeah, I'm home. Where were you? Where were you Thursday? It looked like you were coming from a hotel room. No, that was Monday. Okay. Thursday, I was, what was that Thursday? I don't even remember where I was. I know that I was in Michigan Monday. You were in Michigan on Monday. Anyway, did you have a chance to see Erica? No, I caught the beginning of it. I was I, I had to go out and do some things and came back. Uh, I caught uh, your your interview with uh, with Peter, and and of course uh, with uh, Professor Singh. So what, what do you? Would, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. What did you? Yeah. No, what, I, just, I would when I was listening to to Adnan, I was just thinking we've got to have one callback on. On, on this show because there's so many questions I wanted to ask him and, and Adnan and maybe if, um, if Adnan's podcast this week you know the Taliban pretty decisively decided we were through I mean it was it was pretty striking how coordinated they were how you know they, they called the bluff on this 300,000 plus army that we had been building up for 20 years and uh as Ryan Grimm pointed out earlier today, he says it appears that there was far less bloodshed and loss of life with the Taliban taking over this last week than there had been in the previous two weeks that we were here, which included this bombing. I don't even know why they were doing it, but there were two major provinces. We were bombing, like we could be two bombers, and we were hitting a clinic, and we hit a school, and of course we're killing civilians. I have no idea... But we weren't whipping them like the Taliban. The Taliban whips civilians, and that's oh yeah, that's unseen. That's right. I mean, you just don't see. I mean, when you're dropping the bombs from three hundred thousand, thirty thousand feet, you just you know you don't see the carnage. So anyway, my question to uh, these people who know a lot more about this uh, this history than I do is if they see anything in the Taliban that's similar to Hezbollah. You know, his, Hezbollah was basically a, a force that was a reaction, that was a, a rebel uh, force and, and a terrorist force. But in the areas in Lebanon, which they took control of, they actually started developing schools and, and clinics and hospitals and distributing. They're part of the government. They're like a political party. 
now. They were like a political party. Yeah. So I'm wondering what extent that that was a possibility for the Taliban. Now that we're out, unless there's some other big plan that we haven't heard about. Well, they're not planning on democracy from what they say. Most of these places aren't. And in, in, including us, in a place where in a place where, you know, so many people don't even have the very basic elements of existence, you know, is, is their first I mean, to have a real democracy that isn't controlled by or bought or corrupted, you have to sort of have a society. You have to have a society. The society comes first. There has to be some fundamental agreement about what your life even going to, is going to be about. Right. So and judges, uh, you need you need you need a judicial system. They say before you can get uh, a democracy. Well, you just need a system that resolves disputes in general. I mean, who, how do you establish your, your, that this is your property? How do you establish, you know, like market norms when you're trading for food? I, I mean, just all the, the gritty details of life. And I don't know to the extent that the Taliban has done any of this. Um, but, you know, there are still people there and life will still go on without us yeah it's kind of like uh, corporations being doing good no corporations should just make money and pay taxes don't do good you, you can't solve the problem that you've created and same thing applies to america and afghanistan uh, just get out let somebody yeah. else go you created the problem you can't fix it you can't solve yeah. this it's a problem the women are in trouble but america you created this problem right. you can't fix it you're you're women have been in trouble ever since uh, ziggy decided it was a great idea to start uh, start funding islamic extremists you know to start messing with it's a big uh, news it's a big news did you call him ziggy Ziggy, yeah. So I named my cat after him. Ziggy, my cat Ziggy is named, my late cat Ziggy was named after him. Yeah, it's a big new art from That was his formal. Now, at the time, was, did you fall prey to a belief that Zbigniew Brzezinski was brilliant? Did you, were you a, like a Carter uh, acolyte? Well, uh, I thought that he, he was like a smart person. No. Uh, the first time I voted in a uh, in, in a presidential election was 1980, and I specifically did not vote for Carter because I thought Carter's policy was turning way too right wing. So you voted for and Anderson? Yes, last yes, no. <laughs> you were one of those people. I have to tell I you, remember, I remember I'm the totally responsible. I remember the people who voted for Anderson. He was a Republican who became a. Independent. He was, yeah, a former Republican became independent. And what I never, I don't want to press this because I, the, oh. the people always got pissed off at me when I asked them why they were voting for Anderson. They couldn't really explain. I always oh, say, explain. I, I want, I did not want Carter to think he had a mandate, but I did not imagine that Reagan was actually going to win because even back then I looked at Reagan as a doddering old senile fool. That, yeah, maybe the right wingers are all excited about, but normal people. And when my 
former, when my former socialist landlady was talking about maybe we need to get the Republicans in there to like, you know, settle things financially. I just thought, oh, wait a minute, you know, what are you thinking? She did not because she thought about uh, abortion rights. Was she still a socialist? No, not by that time, but she was still quite a character. However, I remember, and some people, I'm old enough to remember, the night before the inauguration, it was 1981, a very cold January night. My two landlords, the same thing, a few couple. Anyway, we were watching on ABC, had a pre-inaugural special. And there was Nancy and, and, and Ronnie and a room full of Republicans. And Donnie and Marie were leading off the festivities, followed by Admiral Rick Cover coming up from the middle of the stage like Dr. Strangelove, and Jimmy Stewart coming over here and wheeling his wheelchair you know, in the direction of Reagan, because Rickover did not look like he knew where he was. And uh, what just caused me to leave the house was Ben Green doing a blackface routine. No. Yes. Waiting for the Robert E. Lee. At which point, I had to get out of there. I think I said this before, like I told Lizzie that this would be a great time for the Russians to attack Lizzie, so I think I'll just walk and go outside and watch the skies for a while. You know, it's like, it was horrible. I mean, that's what I, re- I just remember being so fatalistic. This is it. The planet is done. We've maybe got two years before we go up and we're all of us. It was a very, very bad time. I, and my, then, my recollection, I had a, a, a very, uh, that was a watershed election for me because I had Reagan paraphernalia. I had posters. I was living in New York at the time, smoking and drinking. And I thought if you were stoned in 1980, Reagan was hysterical. I thought it was the funny that I cannot believe this is the end of the Republican Party. I cannot believe that they're nominating this He's not even a good actor. And I told people I'm voting for, I would piss my parents off. I'm voting for Reagan. I would just do it as a joke. Uh, I remember watching the debate. My father said that that it was basically Reagan's one and only term, as he thought, would just remind people why you should never vote for Republicans. Right. Everything I thought I knew was thrown out. I I realized after 1980, I don't know anything. Well, in high school, I often wondered, like, wow, things are opening up. Like, as a teenage girl, I'm getting away with, you know, figurative murder. You know, I'd be stoned in previous centuries for it. Was this just the arc of history now, or was it an anomaly, anomalous time? I'm still wondering if that was that, in the 70s, that was that high watermark of, you know, some kind of glimpse of a better future. And that got shut down pretty decisively with Reagan's. Well, you can still get stoned. You can now. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good then. I remember getting stoned and watching Reagan debate Jimmy Carter, laughing so hard. I was so arrogant. I just thought, this is the funniest thing. I swear to you, Professor, I I was like curled up on the couch laughing thinking, I can't oh. believe Reagan got this far. And then the next day, 
everybody said Reagan won the debate. And I thought, what am I smoking? I mean, although I have I to say, I haven't smoked. I, I was just angry at how uh, unfair people, I thought people were very unfair to Carter. Uh, Carter never endeared himself to the Washington press. He was always an outsider, of course, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I don't know why they didn't consider Reagan such an outsider, but Reagan had been in Hollywood forever. So everybody knew, well, even my landlady that night watching the ABC special was like, isn't this fun, Marianne? She's drunk. <laughs> isn't this fun, Marianne? We watched him in the movies. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, that that was kind of, there, there was a sort of a vuncular type of uh, effect that Reagan had to certain, you know, particularly that generation. Uh, I remember my I, father, I remember my father who who hated Reagan, I remember he said like a year, like the first three months mm-hmm. into the presidency, my father said, uh, but at least he's doing something. You get a sense that he's doing something. He was joking, but he meant it. And mm-hmm. my son's my son is obsessed with the movie Conspiracy, which is about the Wannacy Convention where they came up with a plan to exterminate the Jews. It's a great HBO movie. And the one of the last lines at the end of the movie is the meeting's adjourned, so it's settled. We're going to exterminate the Jews. And uh, the leader of the meeting says, we, we did something today. We, we did something. Which speaks volumes Wait, to just our, because you're doing something volume. doesn't mean you're doing something. Yeah, uh, no, that's because you know you you. I think you hit something. It was like the nation felt stuck, like we had been moving ever since World War Two, been moving forward, 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 and then something happened. Well, Nixon happened. The Vietnam War happened. Nixon happened. No gas. And Jimmy Carter just did not have the vision, the political acumen. They he just didn't. He wasn't the leader we needed to have at the time to have launched us in a much different trajectory, like you know, truly renewable. So I mean, when you listen to Carter's speeches, they almost make you cry because some of this he was very articulate. He was, yeah, I know Harvey J.K. would call him neoliberal. We didn't have that language at the time, but um, I think they believed in capitalism, but they believed that capitalism would lead to like uh star trek <laughs> that would right. it would lead to the, you know to starfleet and the federation of planets rather than to mad max land um and it's it, it's kind of but there were, i mean some of his speeches on energy and a future off of oil a future off of all fossil fuels was just prescient i mean it was just you know like and values, pers- you know, Carter scolded us about our personal values. The, the speech that got called the malaise speech, he, uh-huh. never, he never used the word malaise. But in that, it was a leader who questioned what we valued and, and you know, living with less and not surrounding yourself with material things. It was, it was incredible to have a president talk to us yeah. as adults. And... That's a little bit out of touch because, you know, even back then, 
a lot of people were struggling. I mean, the middle class was feeling squeezed. They were feeling like that they didn't, weren't feeling the prosperity of the 1950s. They were, you know, feeling like, you know, things are getting a lot more tenuous. The middle class, and there was, um, even in my own case, um, the, the scholarship I went to the University of Michigan, if I had won it a few years before, if I had been a few years, you know, from before, uh, a few years older, that was a, that was a full grade four-year scholarship. And then they started, in the 70s, they started means testing things like this. Even though people who were middle class and making maybe making decent salaries, you know, college was tuition, which was no longer uh, minuscule or insignificant. It was beginning to creep up significantly. I mean, that was, these were the kind of things that people were feeling squeezed by. And, you know, so to have Carter, like, be wagging, essentially wagging a finger at people. Right. And and, and basically telling people was, uh, the subtext, it was basically our fault that things, because you know, it was our life, it was our American lifestyle. He said. So that was almost like a sacrament about 20 years before. Carter said, um, a, Carter said a president is only as good as his people. Ooh, another bad mistake. He's right. Mm. I just remember the immortal words of J.R. Bob Dobbs, about the only thing I remember these days. Who was he? Hey, the uh, spiritual leader of the subgenius, Church of the Subgenius. You can't, you've got to be kidding. Okay, look it up. I was an ordained minister. I had my card. I could do the short Dermar marriages, marriage ceremony and everything. So we, what was, I didn't, I didn't know about this. What is this? It's a kind of totally bogus, made-up religion, but done by people who had obviously studied religions. I mean, there wasn't a single in the churches of subgenius handbooks. I mean, there wasn't a single religion I had ever read that they hadn't touched on really? and sufficiently lampooned. But was it a put-on? Yeah, except if you listen to the Reverend um, Ivan Stang and his dear friend's radio hour, it was a radio show, I think, out of Texas. It was kind of like um, fireside theater type, you know, that that sort of uh, like uh, irony. And, and so you you had to be in on the joke or? It was kind of, you could be in on the joke or you could take it seriously. Either way it would work. But uh, were they in on the favorites, joke? One, one of my favorite quotes, which helped me, was, hey, I don't practice what I preach because I ain't the person I'm preaching to. That's <laughs> <laughs> helpful. That's the Democratic Party. That is the Democratic Party. I love their slogans. You'll wow. pay to know what you really think. And I zing. Well, I'm sorry. Wait, say that again. I didn't hear what. He says, you'll pay to know what you really think. You will pay to know what you really think. And, and wow. Doctor, my brother, who used to be cool, but then got under the influence of bad people. He started with the uh, the forum, the S, you know, word right. of heart training. And then he went off the deep end with a whole bunch of other things. And he was trying to convince me to pay 800 bucks for a weekend. And there I am, keep it up my mind. <laughs> I don't tell me this. I said, yeah, you'll pay to know what you really think. And that was the last winner of, oh, no, you got me, right. you got me. But then, no, he didn't, I thought we'd snap him out of it, but no. 
we used to part that. But anyway, that's... Um, We've yeah, been taken I, I, over by disciples of the forum and est, unfortunately. Well, you know, uh, some of my older friends actually did. Well, the forum was kind of like a mid-80s, late-80s. It was, you know, little S-white yuppies could deal with it a little easier. But it was still, I knew older friends who had gone through S and it had really helped them. Um, one of the things I found remarkable about the Americans, the TV show, that, you know, the Soviets that had, had posed as Americans for many, many years, well, the husband starts having second thoughts about the whole, what are we doing here? So then he joins Est. And it wasn't, a jo- I mean, you, usually you would think if, the, if that happened in a TV series, it would be kind of a farce. But no, it, it was, Est was seriously handled, and I had the, as much as I want to smirk at it. I mean, I had friends who were seriously helped by Est. I mean, whose lives were. But. Yeah, that was back in the self-indulgent 90s, 60s, or 60s, 70s, and 80s. But, uh, you know, it, it, I think you're right, something you said before. The, the election of Reagan, there hasn't been quite a watershed moment like that in my lifetime. I mean, right. I mean in terms of politics. That, that was, you know, so as much as perhaps... Uh, as Roosevelt was in the 1930s in terms of changing the direction, boy, were we on a course. And, you know, um, we were talking a little bit earlier about Afghanistan. I was reading something that was uh, earlier, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Oh, please, if there's one thing I will not tolerate is mispronunciation on this show. Everything must be pronounced properly. <laughs> what? John F. Sopko, he was the a special uh, inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction, and he held that job. He still is, and he held that job since 2012. And just reading through the summary of his final report, which was apparently just released, I mean, it's it's stunning. It's almost morbidly dry humor. Well, is this the is this from the papers that got released by the Washington Post? Um, no, I don't know if it was in there. They might have. I, I was uh, the Afghanistan papers. Somebody came up in a in a one of the uh, substacks that I'm on. They they actually had a link to his, his final report. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Afghanistan papers had. I think had, they're based. Uh, they may be based on his. Yeah. Anyway, it was just uh, it, it's just a stunning. That, you know, how can we explain that, by the way, he had warned everybody about this four years. He had warned, he had warned Trump, he had warned Obama. I mean, this is, this is nothing new in, inside internal policy circles. And all of the futility of our activities were known to people in all these administrations. And, uh, you know, but now what what kills me is that the news media now regard our very quick, unexpected leaves taking as, quote unquote, a catastrophe. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a PR catastrophe and it's a catastrophe for, uh, you know, this policy of us, you know, being this invincible war machine that can impose our will. Yeah, it's a catastrophe for that because uh, we are no longer invincible in the eyes of people. Well, we certainly weren't when we went into Iraq. 
Yeah. Now, catastrophe was the first British invasion of Afghanistan in the early 19th century, when when they finally left, only one Brit was alive or was left alive, and they believe it was a doctor, and uh, and he went. He was allowed. He survived the journey from Kabul to um, uh, one of the bases, uh, uh, bases in, in Afghanistan at the time uh, that was still it was a British stronghold, and uh, they let him live on purpose. It was but then the, the British just dissolved. I mean, their presence just dissolved for uh, you know for the next uh, sixty years. At the end of the century, they came back, kept Russia out, but I mean. You know, these things, at least we have Al Gore's internet. That's something we didn't have uh, 40 years ago, something not everybody was regularly on 20 years ago. It's a little harder to hide real catastrophe now. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe the older generation listens to network news and MSNBC. I think the average viewer now on MSNBC is 68. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, nobody's nobody under the age of forty is watching Rachel Mad Maddow regularly. I mean it's like it, you know, this the, the demographic has really shifted. Yeah. I, we we have okay. to we we have to wrap it up because I I am I have to promote the show. I'm trying to go on other people's shows to to promote this. I I, I didn't know that you're supposed to promote a product. I just assumed you could find that the, the show was a mousetrap, you know, and I've learned how successful mousetraps are in my apartment. They don't catch mice. I thought, make a great show and you'll just find oh, people. people will just come to you like monster plane. Yeah. Yeah. Then I try. Then I actually needed a mousetrap and they don't exist. Before you go, I was. There was something. Oh, that they call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. Mm -hmm. And I hope they're right. I hope they're. I hope this is, and, you know, um, our friend, uh, Professor Wolf, was, uh, was talking about this earlier this week. And it might be the end of this kind of capitalistic, imperialist type system. But that's not bad. I mean, all, all systems end. Nothing goes and not a single country has ever gone out, you know, in a steady state for any length of time. It has always changed and evolved. What usually comes after empires, um, sometimes not even bloody, but what usually comes in their wake is better coffee, better wine. And a new religion. New religions. Yeah. We always need. I have to wrap it up. I love you. I wish we had more time. Professor Marianne Cummings is a parks commissioner mm -hmm. for Aurora, Illinois, and a physicist. And uh, thank you so much. We'll see you for uh, the professors and Marianne, I hope, on Thursday. And uh, thank you so much. I, I, I do have yeah. to. I'm, I, I have to. Somebody's waiting. Uh, thank you. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom, are you still there? Yes, sir. Let's see if I can remember the show. Okay. 4.30. It started at 4.30. The first guest was Dave Cyrus. Then we went to, come on, Feldman. 
Dave Cyrus, Peter B. Collins. Yep. And then Erica. Yep. For us.com. E-R-I-C-A for us.com. Please send her money. Then David Cobb. Then Dr. Harriet Fraud. Then Professor Adnan Hussein. Then Professor, then you, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Yep. And then uh, Professor Marianne Cummings. And then I said goodnight. That's it. It's a show. It's a shorter show tonight. I uh, thank you all for showing up in the chat room and in the Zoom room. Please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We do a live stream every Monday and Thursday starting at 5 p.m. We started at 4.30 at the last minute because of scheduling issues. But if you'd like to sit in the virtual studio audience, please go to my website and sign up. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And go to ericaforus.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please give money to Erica. We want her to go to Washington, ericaforus.com. If you want to thank me for tip me for today's show or tip us for today's show, go to ericaforus.com and give Erica Smith money. She's a state senator in North Carolina. She should be a U.S. senator from North Carolina. I'm David Feldman. Remember, watch how slick I'm going to be now. Watch this. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way